0: Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank.
1: Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm super excited because I get to say... uh, And today
2: we're also joined by... It's me, Matt. (laughs) Hi, Matt. Hello, Peter and Frank. Hi, Matt. I tried to mimic your your usual opening. (laughs) It was very good. It was very good.
1: Great, yeah. Well, it's, well, this is really exciting. This is, I guess, a kind of a while coming now. It's, it's been a weird end of the cycle uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of in terms of when the packs have come out. I don't even know whether some people have got all the packs now. I think by mm-hmm. now
2: everyone has the everyone final pack. Have. I think so. Uh, sorry if you're one of the people watching who doesn't, but I think <laughs> I, I think it's out, like, fully out now.
1: And actually, just, uh, I guess we'll touch on a spoiler warning briefly. Usually we'll do these episodes, we'll talk about the player cards 1st and then move on and talk about the story cards afterwards with it, with a kind of a, a break point halfway through when we do that. So, so don't don't feel like you can't listen if you haven't got the end of the cycle uh, or you haven't had a chance to play it yet because your your playmates are all isolated somewhere. Uh, Frank will put a timestamp in the in the description of where you can't listen, I
0: guess. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. And we should probably say we've invited Matt on the cast to talk about the Dream Eaters <laughs> because that cycle's over. It's probably worth just saying because we all know what we're doing, but you, the listener, might not. Yeah. So yeah, for if you're not if you're new to the podcast, we normally invite Matt, who's the lead developer of Arkham Horror: The Card Game, onto the podcast at the end of cycles, and we're really lucky and grateful to have you on again Matt oh, for another uh, end of cycle interview
2: yes yeah, this how many times is this actually the fifth time that I've been on the
0: yeah
2: it sounds about I right so. yeah it's awesome yeah I yeah. can't believe this is cycle five already
1: yeah I can't either <laughs> but when I think about like, it, it still feels new yeah so like yeah, when, I think about to, when I played other
2: LCG cycle five was like deep in the game yeah yeah mm. it is mm. I I joined um let's see when did I join Lord of the Rings? I think I joined Lord of the Rings in cycle four. Um yeah, it's during cycle four. So like the fact that it's already we're already past that point with mm. with Arkham makes it feel a lot, you know I don't know, a lot more real, I guess. <laughs>
1: And there's no there's no sign of things slowing down. Oh Because no. we've no, got we've great. got a new cycle announced. We've got the starter packs announced. We've got we've even got like a comedy scenario. <laughs> <coming>. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know when, but yeah, oh, I can't wait for that.
0: So I guess that leads quite neatly to a question of what's sort of behind the motivation of you doing all of these different products and things like that. Is it is it you just feeling like you can spread your wings or is the pressure from the department to come up with new products and new ideas. Sort of, what's, mm. what's, what's behind that?
2: It's a good question. I, it's kind of a number of different things. Like I don't, I, I wouldn't say that all of the various products have all stemmed from like one, one reason. Uh, so like the, for example, the, the Barkham thing, that was very much a, like we had that, that joke last year for April fools. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And it just kind of blew up enough that uh, Andrew Navarro, a CEO at the time, was like, "Let's just do it. <laughs> like Let's just make one." <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't like there was a, a a gap in a schedule that we needed to fill, or like it, it really just came from a, a a love of the game and a love of that you know particular idea in uh, in general. And so they were like, you know what, I we we can handle one additional like thing in your schedule and actually i was like yeah just do it (laughs) just 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 put it on the schedule i'll do it it's fine (laughs) but then like the starter decks that was that was very much there was like a desire from the higher-ups to have that sort of introductory product and so that's kind of what we came up with it was very much like Mm. we we want you to come up with some kind of starter deck thing because we've seen that do well in other games before and we want arkham arkham's a, a really good introductory lcg game for a lot of people so we want you to come up with some kind of new starter product that isn't just a new car set or anything like that. And that's what we ended up uh making out of that conversation.
0: Well we've yet to actually get our hands on the starter decks, so I guess we'll withhold judgment for a little <laughs> bit, but I'm definitely really excited about them. And you know, fans of the cast will know that Peter and I have talked a lot about how do you get new players into the game. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're alone in that as well, you know, other places on the internet talk about how how do you keep a game that's been going for five cycles growing and it's definitely a lot more daunting i think for new players to look at this game and all of the products that are out Mm -hmm. than if they're just buying into a single cycle so yeah it'll be really interesting to see if we see a real surge of new players and yeah that'd be really cool yeah i agree before we go any further we should just quickly acknowledge what you can and can't share as a reminder to listeners sure just in case yeah. there's ever a question we ask that you say, no comment or whatever it is. Right,
2: yeah. If I ever can't answer a question, it's not because I'm just being a jerk. Uh, it's because, you know, there's we have rules as to what we can and can't say on, on the air. Um, mainly, I, I can't share anything about upcoming... Uh, I mean, I can share some stuff about upcoming products, but I can't share any specifics about upcoming products can't really answer any questions about like what are you gonna make after insmith you know what I mean like that sort of thing that's that's very much hush hush we don't we don't want to announce anything anything brand new mm. and uh, for the most part can't really talk about like the previous like versions of cards although sometimes I mm-hmm. will I will uh, chime in a little bit about stuff like that but for the most part that's like in general the stuff that I can't share if that makes sense yeah
0: yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to me after before four times, yeah. But it's worth acknowledging. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how are you? I guess how are you feeling about Arkham? Then you've sort of alluded to it five cycles in. <laughs> it seems to have gone quickly. Weirdly, does it feel like it's gone quickly? <laughs> yeah,
2: it really does. When I so I've been with FFG for like eight years now. It feels like the last five years of those eight years have gone by insanely fast. But yeah, the game's doing super well. I feel great about where we're at in terms of the fan base is is really excited for for what's coming. We have a lot of, like we've touched upon earlier. We have a lot of different like wacky products that we've never done before, which is really exciting. And mm. I think honestly, I think that this is going to be like not just this what's coming here, but like this year in general is going to be like a A new renaissance, I think, for for Arkham. You know what I mean? With the Mm. starter decks, Mm. and we're in a, like, halfway... Or, or what's the word? We're in, like, a pause now, because Dream Eater's just finished, and Inzmit's going to be coming out in a few months, so it's this is going to be, like, a new surge. You know what I mean? Hopefully.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Dream Eaters almost foreshadows all of that as well, because there are so many weird and wonderful things about Dream Eaters. Even the campaign structure was different so it's felt like it's felt like a really good time for new products as well just in that idea of that the game won't be stuck in the sort of railroad tracks of deluxe four uh, six packs deluxe six packs we will never change from this style Mm -hmm. like already you've seen that kind of breaking down or being shaken up yeah yeah yeah.
1: you also have a new uh i guess is it Co-designer? Yeah, that's right. Sidekick (laughs) in in Jeremy. Do you want to talk a bit about... um, uh, Yeah, accomplice, yeah. (laughs) Co-conspirator. Do you want to talk a bit about um, Jeremy's role in the team and and how that's maybe changed the dynamic at all?
2: Yeah, uh, so Jeremy... So we've only just kind of announced it recently because the products that he was working on happened to be the the ones that have been announced recently. But he's actually been part of the team for a little while now, um, almost a full year Hmm. at this point. At first, he, he was brought on board because, as I alluded to earlier, we have a lot of product going on right now, and uh, he was available to, to do some work on the side, and uh, now he's kind of full-time Arkham, uh, which is great, mm-hmm. because we do have a lot of product going on, and Arkham's a lot of work. Like Honestly, just the scenario design in Arkham uh, alone takes a, a, just a ton of time. So he started off kind of helping work on the player cards, especially with the starter decks, because the starter decks was like almost a full cycle's worth of player cards. Hmm. And he, he did the the Harvey Walters deck and the Nathaniel Cho deck, uh, which was a huge load off of my plate, right? And uh, since then, he's been helping a lot with, uh, with new player card ideas and game balance, and he's even uh, tried his hand at some scenarios as well, some of which you'll see, hopefully some of which we haven't shown yet. So I'm really excited for that. It's going to be really okay, cool. cool. But yeah, dynamic-wise, we get along really well. We've, we've been friends for a long time. He's been a playtester since the very beginning.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was going to say one of our, our uh, listeners had shared on, on a different server, a Netrunner server, a, a, an Arkham quiz. Uh, one of the questions was identifying which were the real nicknames oh jeremy my goodness yes from the uh, uh <laughs> let's go let's go infinite or something like that was one of them I it was
2: uh, i believe the one that one is uh jeremy quote went infinite again zorn <laughs> yeah <that's> because <laughs> he, he kept finding infinite combos like one after the other <laughs> Oh man! well that's great i
1: mean it, j- jeremy's got a, a Track record in doing very well at competitive.
2: Yes, yes. Card games, Jamie's doesn't... like a five-time world champion, uh, or maybe even more, in various uh, LCGs. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, I think. Um, Conquest. He's a he's a champion netrunner, etc. So he is a very skilled card game player, very analytical, and hopefully can bring some of that to to Arkham, create some some cool combos and stuff like that.
0: And is there a hierarchy between you? How do you, like, how do you go about dividing up who's doing what? How did it end up that he did? Nathaniel and Harvey say. So
2: generally speaking, with the LCG department, we try to be really like, uh, we try to you know assign. We don't we don't like to assign stuff to people. Just like hey, you're working on this. Here you go. It's 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 a lot more collaborative than that because. We find mm-hmm. that with with a creative endeavor, if you're excited about something, if you have cool ideas for something and you want to work on it, that creates a better product and it creates a product quicker too. So generally speaking we we divide things up the way that we both mutually want them to be divided up. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like he picked Nathaniel and Harvey. I didn't like assign them to him yeah because those are his two favorite classes, so it just kind of worked. but as, as far as hierarchy goes, uh, I'm still the lead developer for arkham and i guess have seniority mm-hmm. but like i said it's not really like a i'm not like his you know i'm not like his superior or anything i'm not like his boss I, he we work together on everything you know what i mean mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah sometimes if anything if anyone's going to do the assigning it'll be someone above both of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, Jeremy, you okay. have more time Answer in your it. schedule, so you're going to work on this thing. Or Matt, you you have to work on this thing because I said so. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Very good.
2: It's it's an
1: interesting point because because we've we've found the same. Although obviously we're not making a card game, we're mm-hmm. making a podcast. <laughs> we are always at our, our most productive and and uh, produce our best content when it's something we you know we're passionate about. Mm. Occasionally in the past we've done things that we felt we should rather than that we really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can always tell that it, it takes longer to do. Oh yeah, <laughs> is, is the is the classic thing as well. Uh, yeah. It just takes ages to get
0: yeah. around to it. Yeah, you've got to have that fire lit under it, haven't you? I suppose.
2: Yeah, and and um, I've found that like with uh, with Arkham, like fighting that fire is impossible. Like sometimes I'll have an idea for a scenario, and it clashes with like the original intent or the original idea that I had for the the story or something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um. I'll try to fit it. I'll try to like wedge it in anyway. I'll try to, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then finally, I'll just be like, I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll try to like get, I'll, I'll, I'll shape the story around that, that wacky idea that I had. Because mm. that idea, when I actually go to like build that scenario, it like, I'll just be done in like three days because I, it, I had that idea so kind of like solidified in my head. Uh, and I can't mm. think of one off the top of my head right now. Um, that like matches that but if i do i'll I'll, min- I'll mention it but like there's definitely scenarios where i just can't get my head away from a certain concept you know
0: i'm thinking but this could be way <laughs> off base
2: but something like
0: C- city of archives yeah you're like yeah, city we're of gonna archives... do a body swap
2: yeah. <laughs> city of archives uh is definitely similar i wouldn't say it's exactly one of those where it's like i designed it in in, like three days because the idea was so firm in my head Mm. i think blob was one actually that was like that where like once me and brad had the idea for blob the whole thing just came together real fast Mm. because it it was just so like i like i could just envision it
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it's
2: just a really nice clear
0: idea i guess right yeah so let's move on i think to player cards because we we in the Dream Eaters received a lot of different new things. We saw Bonded being fleshed out. Mm-hmm. I know that it came up at the start of at the end of Circle Undone, but it was more fully explored in this cycle. We also got Myriad. There was also the twin campaign streams. Well, the three different ways to play right. it. I remember when we last spoke to you, you were saying, "Yeah, you can play the campaign in three different ways." And Peter and I are going, "What?" <laughs> so. <laughs> Let's start with Myriad, I suppose. What were the challenges of adding Myriad, which seems straightforward, it's just three cards instead of two, but definitely has massive ramifications about how decks are constructed mm-hmm. and how XP works?
2: Yeah, I, I think Myriad was one of the easier ones to implement. But I think for me, the challenge was I didn't just want Myriad cards to be like, yeah, these these cards, you can put three in your deck, and like that's it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I wanted there to be some consideration as to, like, why is that number three important? You know what I mean? Like, why... Uh, not just why would I put three copies of this in my deck, but also, like, like I didn't just want them to be good cards that you would just want three of, and that's where the analysis stops. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I wanted to design cards like... Well, like, the for example, uh, this is a perfect one. Uh, the, the segments of Onyx that combine mm-hmm. to form the pendant. It's not just that there's three in your deck it's that you have to get all three and like assemble them like voltron into Mm. into this thing and the art shows the three segments very clearly uh it, it just you know everything about the the art the design the story being told with that card screams like this could not have been done without myriad you know what i mean Mm, yeah absolutely and we actually got to announce that card to the community yeah that's right.
0: and i remember getting really excited about <laughs> the number of times that three is referenced in <laughs> the card right, as yeah. well yeah, yeah yeah there's, there's three segments they each, co- each cost one so it ends up costing three mm-hmm. there's three different things you can yep. do <laughs> they come with
2: three charges it was like oh my goodness how many threes are there? Here? Yeah, so it really, it's like the number really 21 exciting. with jim carrey <laughs> yeah exactly but also that's like exactly. i so like um like solemn vow, for example, like that one's cool mm-hmm. because the reason why it's myriad is because if you're playing a four-player game, there's three different you have three different allies, and like yeah. empower self, you're you're replacing the willpower with the three other stats, like taking willpower out of the equation, you have three other stats. So like all of a lot of the cards, with the exception of maybe like easy mark and one or two others, a lot of the myriad cards are myriad because there are three things. That are like important that are going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The other one that comes up for me, of course, is three aces. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, reveal, <laughs> yeah. reveal your hand, and Whoa. you've only got two aces. Three aces. You're not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: uh,
0: I love that and part. and how about bonded then as well? Because it's it's enough, I think, to be adding some cards that are three x instead of two x. But then there's also some cards that are singletons that have other cards outside of
2: play or, right, right. or the other way around so bonded like you alluded to earlier bonded very much came from those two cards at the end of the circle and done cycle and uh, as you probably know we we kind of create products in tandem mm-hmm. like we're, we're not we're not just like okay circle undone is done now we start working on dream eaters. it's no it's very much like we're kind of working on a lot of stuff at the same time so when I was working on those two cards, Hollowed uh, Mirror and the Occult Lexicon, at the time, bonded wasn't a keyword. It was just like these cards were set aside and whatever. And I was like, oh man, this is such a cool mechanic. I want to do more of them. And mm-hmm. I was working on the the original like kind of pool for the Dream Eaters, and I wanted to do more cards like that. And I ended up just designing a bunch of them because they were just so exciting. And it was so exciting that I was like, you know what, <laughs> I'm just gonna make this bonded keyword. And I'll, I'll slap it. And I actually, it was like very late in the process when I put it on the other two cards. It was like maybe a week before they they went to uh, they, they what we call gold mastered, right? Mm. So it was like, I basically went and I, I, I asked, like, is it okay if I go and I modify these two cards to have this mechanic as like a preview? And they were like, oh yeah, that actually sounds great. And I was like, perfect. So I threw it on them. I, I moved them to the last pack of the cycle because originally they were in other packs so that they would be more of like a like a like a preview right like a teaser yeah and yeah that's that's kind of how that came about but what was cool about the bonded keyword is even though it really doesn't have anything to do with myriad there's a lot of cards that use both yeah and it, like for example the bonded the, the hollowed mirror even though it doesn't have the myriad keyword you have like the three set aside melodies and so i was like okay I'll, i can like do cards that do like the reverse of that like the, the pendant and stuff like that so yeah, the the two ideas kind of melded together uh, in the end.
0: And I guess that was unexpected from the way that you're dis- dis- describing Yeah, yeah. It. yeah.
2: I mean, it was kind of cool because it was like, well, every set of bonnet cards is going to be four cards. Uh, so maybe there's going to be two and two, maybe it's going to be one and three, maybe it's going to be three and one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then in some cases, not even that, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're some of the most... Fun cards, I think, from the cycle. Um, think mm-hmm. of like the Nightmare Bauble, Yeah, Conquering Blade, and yeah, Miss Doyle as well. I think yeah, Miss Doyle, Miss is
2: really great. Um, I like the the Wish Eater, the Jewel. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. That one's really cool. There's just there's I, I think it's a cool mechanic because it lets us do cards that we just previously they're not possible in just like the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it does take up a lot of space, so I don't. I don't see us revisiting that like all the time because you just get less cards overall, but it's just, it's a really cool thematic way to do cards that like cards that shift or morph cards that level up cards that turn into other cards, that sort of thing.
1: It it Mm -hmm. feels like if you described it to me coming out of another card game straight away, it feels like it would be something that's hard to make necessarily, I guess, competitive. It seems like it would be quite a fiddly mechanic. And you'd be like, well, I'm swapping all these cards around. Is it really worth it? But actually, I think Mm -hmm. probably, you know, not only some very well-balanced, some that are actually pretty powerful. Uh, Pendant of the Queen in the right deck is just Mm -hmm. phenomenally good. And I see a lot of people picking the Mirror, Hallowed Mirror, in in decks that can take it outside of Guardian. Because that's really, really nice. And the fact that it, it only takes up one deck slot, but can turn into kind of quite a bit of healing... Feels really useful
2: Mm -hmm. for a healing card. Yeah, yeah, and it's an accessory, which isn't a super competitive slot for guardians.
1: Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. got some good traits there, hasn't it? Is it what is it? Is it
0: got a relic trait?
2: I think it's relic and occult. Yeah, item relic occult, something like that. Blessed maybe as well.
0: Oh yeah, it is blessed. Yeah, 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 Mateo can take it. (laughs) (laughs) He sure can. (laughs) Important. Well, we mentioned guardians there, Mm -hmm. and they also had their own kind of. Enemy to deal with this cycle, which is swarm. Um, but I think <laughs> Peter, you're pretty passionate about swarm. So oh yeah,
1: well, really i want to talk about. I think we want to talk about swarm from the the encounter point of view. But as I said, I will try and focus on player cards initially. Mm. Swarm, I absolutely love because it feels like a keyword that shakes up combat in in quite an quite an interesting way. I think it, it's maybe the most impactful keyword we've had on an enemy since the game started. Mm -hmm. Because I think it it shifts, it makes those AoE cards much more appealing, and it even tackles some of the cards like machete, which you've already looked at with the taboo list, which were becoming kind of quite ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. You know, machete is maybe less appealing when you're fighting against a swarm enemy, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. for
2: sure, yeah. One of the struggles that we had, it wasn't something that came about because we were working on like dream eaters like this particular cycle like oh, dreamlines is all about swarms of enemies it's, it's not it's more just like we were we were kind of thinking of ways that we could uh, well ways that we could shake things up but also like ways that we could throw lots of enemies at someone without it just becoming like a combat game like mm. that's one of the struggles with arkham is we sometimes want players to feel like they're surrounded or feel like they're swarmed without actually throwing multiple cards at them because arkham is not like lord of the rings or marvel where if you have three enemies in front of you you're like oh it's three enemies it's not that bad if you have three enemies in front of you in, in arkham you're in trouble yeah um, like that's a lot uh yeah. even even two enemies is sometimes one is too much because <laughs> um, yeah. they're just tough and you only have three actions and all this other stuff so we wanted to try to find a way to do that to like accomplish that feeling without you know actually just making it a combat game, just making it a game where like, all right, everyone has to play guardians for this cycle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of our way of doing that because I think the best thing about swarm enemies is uh, like you mentioned a lot about the damage stuff. My, for, for me, my favorite thing about swarm enemies is all it takes is one evasion and the whole, the whole swarm is gone. Yeah. So Yeah, so if you're playing an evasion-heavy character, or even if you're playing a guardian who happens to have like three evasion, that suddenly becomes a really enticing option. Like, it's gonna take me six health to like chew through these guys. It's gonna probably take all my ammo or whatever or all my actions. Maybe I'll just evade. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's even there's even an enemy uh, I can't remember the name now. What is I the one I, I know? Like? What
2: you're yeah, the cats from Saturn.
1: No, it's it's the, there's one in uh, the uh, search for Cadath, which mm-hmm. uh, you oh, evade it yeah, and then it yeah, dies. Yeah.
0: Night riders, night
1: riders. that's and it was night something. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say night gaunts, but uh, yeah, and c- c- they've got five evade.
2: Yeah, they've got like five evade, and then they go away if you evade them.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you yeah. can kill one to lower the evade as well. Right, remember, right, right, right,
2: right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and that was I that was a cool
1: one. Chef kiss, perfect enemy. I really <laughs> really like them. <laughs> Thank and you. Why why did the using of the player cards why did that come about rather than say tokens was there a particular logic behind that
2: um we actually we actually went through a couple different versions of it uh we started off using the encounter deck um because then that wouldn't like mess with your deck composition but we found that uh decks encounter decks sometimes are small enough that if you have just a few enemies out all of a sudden the the deck is only like eight cards in it because mm-hmm. there's so many swarm cards in play and that's a huge issue because now you're looping through the same, like, eight cards in a row. You know, God forbid three of these are are ancient evils oh, yeah. <laughs> or something. Um, like, that would be a, a big problem. And then we then we started doing, like, we tried tokens, but tokens don't really work if you want to be able to put, like, the way that we had the swarm cards written, the, the rules for it, you can put tokens on any of those cards. Like, all three of those, let's say you have a swarm of spiders with two swarm cards in front of you all three of those are cards so you can put damage on each of them you can put bounties on them you can whatever whatever card effects we come up with work because they're all cards you know what i mean yeah 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 if they were if they were themselves tokens if it had said like put two resources on this uh enemy to show that it has two other swarms you can't damage them you can't like put a damage token on a resource token it's just kind of (laughs) weird um (laughs) we could have re- rewritten the the rules to work with that but ultimately i thought that what we ended up doing was was optimal there there was there is some weirdness where like if if i put a swarm card on an enemy and then you do too we have to figure out whose swarm card is whose <laughs> yeah. um so that's why we added the rule like a lot a lot of people play with opaque sleeves or with sleeves in general so it's not yeah. it doesn't become an issue if you're playing with sleeves but if you're not playing with sleeves we just added that bullet point that was just like you can look at the other side yeah <laughs> yeah yeah
1: no I, I think and i think using the cards if if that feeling you you're going for is that feeling of be, being surrounded and mm-hmm. um, it, it adds something to that as well rather than being just an enemy with loads of tokens on it
2: yeah i, I think it's easier to remember too if, if it's an enemy with two resources you might just forget uh also we were using resources as bounties in that same cycle so that was confusing um like if, if we were using you put a resource but, on top yeah. of the resource, uh, a resource it's just a
0: one bounty token
2: enemy yeah okay well and you <laughs> never you want to you never want to have the same token on an enemy representing two different things right yeah yeah absolutely yeah and like i didn't want to use horror and we didn't really have any other tokens to use doom doesn't make sense because we do have enemies of doom on them sometimes clues same thing it really just I th- i feel like it was mm-hmm. kind of the only the only real option you know Aside from, like, yeah. making a new token, but we never do new punch. <laughs> we, we would never add yeah. new punch board to a product. Yeah. That, that's crazy talk. <laughs>
0: Just so listeners know, we're recording this after the announcement. <laughs> Into the conspiracy. Yeah. 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 I'm really glad you mentioned the thing about evasion with Swarm, because that, to me, like, how do you give evasion a little boost Mm-hmm. You have an enemy that's three enemies if you want to fight it, and one enemy if you want to evade it. That right. immediately is a boost, but then there's also the the weighing up of. But it is my cards that this swarm have kind of consumed. So if mm. I evade it and run away, it might have two cards that I really need. That you know, my two flashlights might be this, the the swarm cards. So if mm-hmm. I did, if I if I leave this, I might be in real trouble. Um, which I think is just yeah, it's really nice sort of element to how you deal with swarms agreed so we've mentioned a load of different player cards so far are mm-hmm. there any that you're particularly proud of or that you look back on with yeah fatherly pride
2: oh boy i mean that's difficult i i, I think we ask this question like every time mm. <laughs> every time i'm on and every time i'm like i don't know I, they're so <laughs> also fun it's like picking your child right mm. yeah I mean, we mentioned a lot of the bonnet cards. I think those are some of my favorites. Those are some of the cards that had the most work put into them in terms of, like, storytelling. Um, mm, like, what yeah. is the Hungering Blade? You know, what is this empty vessel that turns into a floaty, glowy jewel? A lot of those cards, like, the the writing, the art briefs for those, it's, like, really precise. And, like, there's so many little details in those cards because I, I really wanted them to, to scream, like, the story behind them. But uh, there are also some other cards that I really like. I, I love um, the Eye of Truth." That's one of my favorites in the mm-hmm. cycle, just the the art behind that, and uh, the nice little enigma reference in there. <laughs> <laughs> I like Abigail Foreman a lot, because, as you know, I'm a big Daisy fan, and yeah yeah, it was it was cool to finally have her like sidekick in the game, and yeah, she's like super powerful, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah delilah o'rourke is also another one of my favorites like on on her face she's basically like lola santiago but for combat yeah but she just has such a cool style to her and at the time when we were designing this card um the uh the mansions are not mansions i'm sorry the arkham third edition crew was working on the uh their first expansion which had mm-hmm a very like it had a scenario that was very organized crime feel to it so delilah was in that game as well so we were kind of working together on what her identity is and i just love this idea of this like this uh this assassin this like hardened assassin who just like i don't care who the target is just pay me just pay me yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of just really cool cards in this uh in this cycle Oh, I almost forgot the shining uh, chap is a Heijin. Oh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm. Oh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But that card is so cool, and uh, I love. I I'm a big fan of spell event decks, and when you run this with Agnes and you have the heirloom out and you just have like twenty spell events in your deck. Oh God, it's bonkers. Good. It's <laughs> so sounds, fun.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun to play, actually.
2: <laughs> it's it, trust me, it's great, and it's you know it's only going to get better over time as more spell events come out. But like that deck is so much fun, and I anytime I hear someone say like oh I wish the heirloom was better, I'm like you don't even know because I've drawn <laughs> like 15 cards from it with that deck. You know what I mean? Mm. Just from cards from the cycle.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point actually because I think that that so I try to make. Uh, a, a spell event focus deck in gym mm-hmm. and then Frank and I played it in the uh, Mythos Busters the Constellation on the Constellation mm-hmm. scenario and we failed pretty miserably uh, it felt like <laughs> it felt like a the third player's deck really because mm-hmm. it took a lot of time in a to, two player game uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, it would have been great as a third or a fourth player not as a second player but it used those spell events primarily together with mm-hmm. the what's the myriad card that I'm forgetting the name of the double mind's mic? eye mind's
2: eye oh mind's eye yeah yeah yeah
1: and then you can use cuz it was in gym you can use scrounge for supplies to recur those but of course you have that in gym anyway right so you can get keep those spells coming back you can use your quantum uh, flux to shuffle them back into your deck uh, maybe even use uh, divermis mysterious to mm. to play them again from your your discard pile yep and um, that's definitely an option i think those those are really strong cards i think spectral razor especially is a really potent card i wouldn't yeah, be surprised if you see that in a
2: lot of places spectral razor is very fun just in general like the thing with spell events like if you're or any any event heavy deck you need card draw because you need to keep those events coming you need them to keep cycling through your deck in order to like stay relevant mm-hmm. and like i'm getting ahead of myself here with with this but with like for example nathaniel nathaniel cho uh who's one of the upcoming starter deck cards he's also an, an event heavy character so he needs he needs his boxing gloves which help him draw uh events from his deck every time he like uses one so you're kind of like replacing an event with a new one mm-hmm. every time you use it that's when you really get rolling so like that's why i like playing it with agnes because the heirloom just it doesn't have a limit on it. Just every time you play a spell, you draw a card. So if you're mm-hmm. playing a spell event, like and then drawing a spell event every time, you know, like you're breaking even on your hand size. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's if you've even got something like the robes of night in there, which is giving you oh, yeah. a free resource every turn as well.
2: Yeah, and if you're running this this uh shining trap as Hedron, then you're you're hopefully not paying for like most of those events so it's mm. really good <laughs> the the
0: key thing here is about spell events because people look at the heirloom or look at the shining trapezohedron mm-hmm. and think yeah, about, like, well, i'm only gonna how... play
2: three events you know yeah, yeah I'm, I'm only gonna
0: spells. play a shriveling and a rite of seeking so right. i'm probably not going to get that much value out of this card and yeah particularly with the shining trapezohedron like if you fail you don't get to play the card but then you're not allowed to play it for the rest of the the rounds. So you're like, oh, but that doesn't work. But of course, if you're playing an event deck where you've got a whole host of different ways of dealing with an enemy or getting clues, all and and they're cheaper than playing your Shriveling and Right of Seeking, you can actually make a lot of money out of them mm-hmm. and draw a lot of cards of the Alum. I'm really excited that you're really pro it because I think it's a really cool, weird card. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good one. I think a lot of people... I think... Did they come out in the same pack? Uh... No, they didn't. But I think a lot of people were were more fixated on uh, Twyla, who's Mm. like the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Where like, Twyla is a lot more about assets, about spell assets. So it's kind of like, we threw Agnes a bone and then we threw Akachi a bone, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think this as well,
0: actually, Mind's Eye came out soon after the Empower Self cards. And of course, they're kind of two poles apart as well. One is saying... I'm a mystic who doesn't really care about willpower, and the mm-hmm. other saying, "Hey, hey, hey, like really triple down on
2: your willpower, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, for sure, I'm guessing they're aimed at different people, yeah, they're i mean you don't you don't run both in the same deck, like that would mm-hmm. be kind of pointless, but I mean, mind's eye is great in a lot of mystics, but it's also great in a lot of like off mystics, like Patrice, mm-hmm. for example, is a perfect character for Mind's eye because. You're cycling through your deck really fast. You're liable to see it pretty quickly, and mm. she's got she's four two two two. So you can replace any of those twos with your four, and because she's not a main mystic, the double arcane slot doesn't matter as much. Yeah, mm, yeah, um, yeah, So yeah, she's she's a good she's a good option for it.
0: I've seen people mention Seth as well.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Safina's if, a great you,
0: pick. Yeah, yeah. You use it for your intellect or your combat, and kind of sets you up really nicely.
1: hmm Yeah. I I wanted to talk about the, the pendant of the queen, if that's okay. Oh yeah. I, I was you've actually got me thinking though, is there a, a powerful pendant in Oh, sorry, accessory in each of the classes? Because there's Wishy Tear and the point Guardian. Might be. And then in,
2: in in this cycle or just in in, this, in
1: in this cycle. And then the crystallizer is an accessory? Is it an accessory? The crystallizer,
2: yeah, crystallizers I there's definitely there was a push in this cycle to add more accessories because it was one of the under Sort of underutilized mm-hmm. slots for a lot of classes. Obviously, for like mystics, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, rogues actually have a few. No, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they've got the cigarette yeah. case. The garrote wire. Garrote wire. That's skull. right. Garrote <laughs> wire is an accessory. Uh, the nightmare <laughs> Baubles is an accessory in Survivor. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The Moonstone's mm-hmm. moonstone is also an accessory. So yeah, there's a lot of accessories in the cycle. I also think that that thematically is appropriate for the dream uh, dreamlands because it's it's it has a lot of it has kind of that fantasy feel, that like D and D fantasy adventure sort of feel, and a lot of accessories are kind of like that. They're like D and D magic items.
1: Yes, but they, they feel <laughs> like they've got a backstory, which is which is really cool. Right? Like it fits, yeah, yeah, yeah fits exactly. Fits the theme of the cycle, and yeah, like you say, it has more of a kind of high fantasy or, or, or a fantasy feel to it, which is which is quite cool.
2: Yeah, I think the best accessory cards, like you mentioned, are the ones where you 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 get the feeling, you get the, like sort of the hint that there's a story here that you're not getting, and mm-hmm. you can kind of fill in that hole yourself. You know what I mean? With it's even like thoughts. playing
0: something like Diablo, where you find a unique item, <laughs> yeah, and it has it has a name rather than just being like a an axe or a sword. It has like its own name, and you're like, whoa. How do I find out why it's got this name? Like, yeah, yeah, you know. And there are lots of other games that do the same. Where, some, as soon as something is sort of named, it gives it that that backstory and that allure that you might not get otherwise. I definitely felt that in Dream Eaters. Well, I mean, awesome. I was going to say the pendant though has turned out to be just an incredible card
1: all through my plays, and um, that I've been using it, but not not in a way which I think has detracted from. You know, other people enjoying the game. Mm-hmm. It's it's a real tricksy card, and that ability to evade an enemy at a revealed location uh, is just is so good. It's that it's the answer to so many problems. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. You, and and you want to use those charges on it because you want to get it back in your deck because <laughs> right, normally right. you're three quarters of your way through your deck when you find it. I didn't have a question. Yeah, I was just, <laughs> just <laughs> wax lyrical about the pendant. No question. Like just like this card. <laughs> yeah, just like a card. Yeah, good job.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm really proud of that card also because it, it kind of like sells you on Mandy. Yes. Uh, not that you need to be sold on Mandy because she's really powerful. But I think when you, when you first open the pack, you're maybe like, so all she does is help you search for stuff. But then you see this card and you're like, oh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah because you really want to find those three segments, you know? Mm,
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's research as well, right?
2: Incentivizing
0: you to look in your own deck rather than just draw lots of cards.
2: Yeah, well, that's another one that sort of came about, like, over time. It wasn't something that, you know, like, I planned in the beginning. It was kind of just like, oh, what if there was a card that only triggered when you searched for it? You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And then it was like, and then all of a sudden I had like f- ideas for four different cards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, it's, I, I've, I've had to, I think back a long time ago when I first started playing card games, I was playing Netrunner and played against someone who had exile. Mm. Uh, who's, who's a a Netrunner. Oh, sorry. A, what's the word? A runner. That's yeah. He's the a runner. Before. Uh, who uh, has, he, he draws cards when he installs things from his, from his discard pile. Yeah. And I played against someone who'd been playing for a long time and he, kind of installed loads of things, sacrificed a load of things, drew a load of cards, got a load of money, and then kind of took a breath, and I was like, okay, is that your turn? He's like, no, no, I haven't had my first action yet. And <laughs> the Pendant of the Queen and Mandy, is, I've had turns like that, so, you know, at the beginning of your turn, you use Rook, you find two of the segments, and then you play the Pendant, and you've triggered a research card, and then you use the Pendant to move to a location, and then someone says, okay, is that you finished? You're like, no, no, that's 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 all three actions in my first Yeah, that, <laughs> was,
2: that was just Rook. <laughs> yeah
0: first action i will take a resource (laughs) what yeah definitely this is not linked in any way but how do you feel about the progress of tabooed cards and the taboo list and is it having the impact you wanted
2: yeah i think it definitely is having like the impact that i wanted it to have and uh, again like the coolest thing about the taboo list in my opinion is the fact that it's optional Mm -hmm. and there's definitely like because I know there's definitely people out there who are like, oh, I'm, I'm all taboo all the time, every time. And then some who are like, I'm never going to touch it. And that's perfect. Like, do that. I don't want anyone to feel like they're being forced to use it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think, in general how players have felt, which is great. That they're, they're like they're going to play the way they want to play. And that's what we want. But as far as the players who are using it, yeah, it's definitely having a, 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 the impact that we want. I'm seeing a lot less a lot less of like the staple cards that were in every deck, like machete as like the main weapon for for guardians and Dr. Milan sort of pushing all other seeker allies away while also still like preserving what is great about those cards and like they're still viable cards mm. to use i mm. think i don't think there's a single card that on the taboo list that's like well no one's ever using it now you know what i mean mm. there's maybe some that are that are like less desirable now than they used to be for sure but that's yeah. fine that's what we wanted you know what i mean
0: yeah machete is actually a really good example for that if you are really set on wanting to run machete in your deck four xp gets you machete if you're playing taboo mm-hmm. and like that could be machete has carried me through solo campaigns right yeah. by itself machete a good you know, enough
2: it, card that like it's worth the experience really yeah exactly yeah.
0: and then if you're the player who's going straight away to big guns or you know high xp weaponry you can use the 45 automatic or another weapon in your level zero deck and then instead of using machete just upgrade into your big weapon and like there's no harm there you've tried out a different level zero card and you've you've also then tried out your big xp weapons i mean i mentioned taboo really because rook was mentioned there and i've seen quite a few people i suppose this is that one of the sort of you maybe you foresaw this but definitely was unforeseen for me as a player mm-hmm. with the existence of a taboo list there's then the calls for certain cards to be tabooed and the discussion around well how should it be tabooed right i I think rook is the prime sort of discussion topic mm-hmm. is it something that comes up for you what do you where do you think rook's at
2: yeah we we have a bunch of cards on our radar i shouldn't say a bunch we, we have a few cards on our radar of cards that are like yeah we we probably want to do something uh with this one or that one or the other one Mm. But we haven't actually worked out exactly what we're going to do yet, because we still have some time. We're not planning on updating the taboo list until before Insmith comes out. So uh, Rook is definitely one of the ones that's on our radar. Um, That's not to say that it's definitely going to go on the taboo list, but it's definitely one that we're looking at because there's a lot of chatter around it. Mm. But there's a lot of consideration that goes into adding something to the taboo list it's not just this card is really powerful or people say this card is really powerful it's there's a lot of thought into uh what cards are coming up that players don't know about that are Mm -hmm. going to increase or decrease its its relative power level what um like what other investigators are coming up what other um what other cards are in that same sphere that we want players to be using a little bit more and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. so there's, uh, there's definitely, and like, you know, an analysis of just the, the levels of cards in general. Like, I, I know a lot of people were really confused when Switchblade went on the taboo list. Mm. But that was because at the time, a lot of players, there were a lot of cards that weren't out yet when that card went on the taboo list. And during playtesting, we found that like the opposite was having that was happening, where like a lot of players, for Tony especially, were just running Switchblade. And it's just yeah. so good. like it pushes out all other level two rogue weapons because of its quality yeah like you you had no reason to run like uh the the derringer or or any other like like you might skip it and go to a really high level rogue weapon but as far as like mid-range rogue weapons that one was like by far and above the best
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and you know kind of like machete in that in that sense so we we felt that just, like, the one extra XP was enough to, to kind of, like, you know, push it, not push it out, but, like, make other options as appealing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when that taboo list first came out, everyone was like, like, Switchblade? Rogues don't have combat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> yeah. that, yeah.
1: I think it, it, Rook is an interesting one as well, because while I think he is good, possibly very good, even in isolation, what you can maybe say is that in the Dream Eaters there's been a lot of other cards, good cards, which make him better as well. So in combination with Mandy and um, especially Astounding Revelation, which works essentially to top up Rook as well, um, you can maybe feel like his powers multiplied when he was already pretty good
0: as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. I wonder if Rook had come out in Carcosa, he would have been a really fun ally to run, but Carcosa's so weakness heavy you end up adding so many weaknesses over the course of a campaign you know you can end the campaign or five or six weaknesses in your deck just because of how that campaign plays out that maybe people would be far less positive about rook because that downside of his that you have to draw weaknesses if you see them would be really punishing <laughs> but like playing rook in a in a deck where you only have two weaknesses doesn't feel that bad
2: well yeah that i mean that and also just the like like, all the other cards, like you were saying, all the other cards in this cycle that that combo with him, if he had come out before this cycle, you know, it wouldn't have been as uh, oppressive, I think. Mm. You know?
1: Yeah. And, uh, like you say, um, it's whether you can't judge a card purely on its own merits. Right. In, in in taboo discussions, which is what I was trying to get at with Rook, you know? Yeah. You could maybe yeah. look at him in isolation and say, his power level's okay. Uh, but then again, when you start placing against some of the other cards, is it Rook that's the problem? Is it those other cards? Um, mm. What's what's the little lever we tweak in this situation, if any, to change the outcome?
2: Yeah. Any, yeah anytime you have a combo of cards or a combination of like uh, a bunch of different cards that becomes really powerful, it's it's important to like laser focus on the the card that is causing the problem,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and not you know not maybe not touch like the entirety of the combo and rook is very much one of those one of those cards where he like he's an an enabler like he doesn't do anything by himself yeah it's it's all the other cards that he lets you go get at such consistency you know what i mean
0: Mm.
2: and i mean he's also
0: an enabler of like a hilarious fun deck style right that kind of mandy dream enhancing serum thing (laughs) is also like in itself a fascinating way to play the game where you find two cards, one of them you have a copy of in your hand that draws you another, like that stuff is really satisfying as a player to play. (laughs) The thing I love about it is it doesn't necessarily mean you're winning. It's not like every card you find uh, kills an enemy or automatically gets you a clue, although there are cards that do that. (laughs) So it's more just like you're in this weird game of, ideas flying through her head can her, i draw my you know. whole deck yeah exactly <laughs> you know like it makes me think actually weirdly of the the jeremy's one gone infinite again
2: thing. yep <laughs> it's
0: like you know i've number of times i've sent peter a picture of my hand and said like i've got six cards in hand and there's a card fan that my hand can't actually hold because all of the <laughs> duplicates aren't counting whatever but that that doesn't mean i've won or lost the scenario and in fact the outcome of the scenario is not even relevant at that point i'm just like look at this weird thing i've done it would be a real shame if rook was tabooed because like that is he's allowing something really fun to happen at that point in combination with lots of other cards
2: yeah but even if even if he does end up on the taboo list like if that's the deck that you want to make and the experience that you want to have just Mm. ignore it (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm I'm giving you my 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 full permission you know what i mean (laughs) Thanks,
0: Matt.
1: Anyway. <laughs> this does lead on to another topic we wanted to talk about, uh, and I think this is an interesting cycle for for, for this, is uh, deck size. Because mm. standard, standard card game thinking from, from pretty much any customizable card game is that you want to run the smallest deck you can. Uh, so when we we flipped over Mandy and said there's an option of taking 30, 40, or 50 <laughs> cards... You know, why Why would I ever want to do that? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this?
2: So, uh, I mean, two things, obviously. Like, Arkham, Arkham has weaknesses. Like, that's yeah. immediately, like, probably what the first thing that people think is. Like, oh, if I get 50 cards, my weaknesses are a lot more spread out. They're going to happen less, and I might not even ever see them. And that's something that's, like, really unique to Arkham. Like, no other game has, has this sort of... Uh, Another game that I know of has this sort of mechanic where the more you draw, the more the more you get bad cards. So that's one reason why you might want to go above 30. But also, like in a cooperative game like Arkham, I think that there is value also in just having a wide range of different things that you can use to tackle different problems. Hmm. Because Arkham's the kind of game where every time you play... Like, different scenarios are going to challenge you in different ways. You might have a scenario where there's lots and lots of enemies and you need to be really evasive. You might have another scenario where the map is really big and you need to move a lot. And then you might have a scenario where it's just, like, you're holed up in one area with five shroud and you need to get a bunch of clues or something like that. Like, there's so many different things that could happen. Sometimes 30 cards isn't enough to cover all of your bases. So that's another reason why, like, 40 or 50 cards might be desirable, in general, you're totally right. Like 30 cards is going to be more consistent. You're going to be able to find the cards that you want e- more easily. But with Mandy, you're so good at searching. Yes. If you're digging, if you're us- if you're using her ability to dig deeper every time you search, you might not have a problem at all going to 40 or 50 and finding the cards that you need. I know some people who have gone to 50 are probably shaking their head at me right now, but <laughs> it's definitely like I personally always went forty whenever I was playing Mandy. I felt like it was a nice middle ground, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. where like her her ability to search makes that forty really feel like thirty, and her signature yeah, card go. is is pretty powerful. So having multiple copies of it is really nice too.
0: Yeah, at that point, if you've got astounding revelation and two occult evidence, you've got nice five research cards to hit on searches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like a sort of good place to be. I'm. I think what you just mentioned. I just want to flip back to it. That idea of you want decks that can do different things. And I just share an anecdote. I've been playing this pretty powerful Silas deck. I mean, Silas is pretty powerful anyway, but using things like. Uh, perception and live and learn and lucky to get clues and doing sort of those shenanigans mm-hmm. and I actually sent messages to Peter about this as well I got to a location in Point of No Return the Vale of Pnath mm. which is for Shroud and a Clue and it says while there are clues remaining on the Vale of Pnath investigators cannot play cards or commit <laughs> cards to skill tests and I just took a photo of it and said, Peter, what do I do? Like, how as <laughs> how Silas? Do you get clues here? Because you can't commit cards or will play cards. And had a real, like, sort of, it was a really fun gameplay experience of going like, well, I'm going to have to use Flashlight. And it's going to be a two-on-two, so I'm probably going to need to take that test multiple times. Is there any way I can also boost my intellect? Oh wait, of course, I've got Randolph in my deck. I need to find Randolph. <laughs> you know, it was it it provided this really fun experience where my deck is very good at most things, but this particular bottleneck really challenged it. Mm. Yeah, so I really like that. That's that's interesting
2: because really like depending on your choice of investigator, that card or that location might be a total pushover, or it might be a huge problem yeah and i think the same is true for like in the opposite where it's like if you're playing if you're playing like uh well like mandy and um an enemy like that knight rider that we mentioned earlier might be the complete opposite where it's just like all i have to do is kill one and it's evade drops to like two but i can't even do that <laughs> with mm, the tools yeah, that i have at I my disposal that? so i can't evade and i can't fight i'm like oh god save me roland <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking as well of the Gug in Point of No Return.
2: Oh, yeah. Like, if you're not
0: ready to deal with that Gug, that is just terrifying for, for solo investigators. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, worth noting as well as we're talking about deck size that Versatile also is doing something quite interesting where it's saying, look, you can, you can add cards to your deck which isn't necessarily a bad thing, and you can break your deck-building rules. Mm -hmm. And it's a card that I was definitely unsure about when it came out, but having actually played it on the cast, I've come round to the idea of Versatile being this really empowering card to do wacky things that you wouldn't do otherwise. Mm -hmm. What came first when you designed Versatile, if you can remember? The idea of... like. Was adding five cards to your deck a penalty or a reward or, yeah, how do you see it?
2: I mean, it's definitely, it, like, statted as a penalty, if, if you know what I mean. Like, what mm. if you look at the card as a whole, its experience costs, what it, what the benefit that you get out of it, uh it's posed as a penalty. It's supposed to be, like, a drawback. But in some investigators and in some contexts, it's not that bad. mm but you you do have to, like, consider that when you're purchasing it. Like, yeah, I'm paying experience and I'm adding to my deck size. That's kind of... Eh, I don't know if I want to do that. But, you know, if you can play around it or if you are the kind of investigator who could use five extra cards in their deck, then it becomes really kind of a non-issue. Mm. It really just depends on the deck that you've built. You know what I mean? Like, if, you, yeah. if your deck is all about, like getting your most important card out and then like keeping it in play for as long as possible or like Mm. like a guardian with a a big signature weapon or something then adding five cards to your deck is a really bad prospect because you're suddenly a lot less consistent than you used to be Um, Mm, but yeah if your deck is all about having a toolbox of cards that all help you do different things then five extra cards is like five extra tools and all of a sudden it's not that bad you know what i mean so Yeah, yeah but
0: if you can see all of those tools and find the right tool for the job,
2: it's right. really powerful. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, while we're talking of uh, people with big decks, should we talk about Patrice? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm. Seasoned Lord of the Rings players know about the power of a fresh hand every turn, and uh, I think particularly in the face of most investigators are drawing one card a turn, mm-hmm. uh, or one-plus cards rather than five. So, yeah, I suppose our question is how do you even begin to balance the power of patrice you know, <laughs> up against the five cycles we've seen so far and like i think she's a good target for players trying to make her sort of super powered
2: mm-hmm. yeah so I, I mean i think patrice actually ended up being a little more self-balancing than Aristor was for, for full context Aristor is the character in lord of the rings that does a really similar effect um who i also designed <laughs> but like What's what's different between these two games is Arkham has actions. That's like a built-in limiter of like what you can do on your turn. So if I pull five cards, like I I'm not guaranteed to be able to play all of them. Even if you mm. take resources out of the equation, even if every card was free, you might not be able to play all those cards because if if I draw five of them and they're all assets, or if I draw you know five of them and none of them are fast, then I'm only going to be able to play a couple of them. And and even if I am able to play three of them i'm not really doing anything else (laughs) i'm just kind of just playing Mm -hmm. three cards every turn and that's it i'm not moving i'm not investigating i'm not attacking or whatever so you you kind of have this built-in limitation on what you can and cannot do on your turn and you have to juggle the fact that you drew all these cool and interesting cards that you want to play with like the goals of your turn like what what do you actually need to get done in that moment and i've i've definitely seen a lot of players fall into the trap of like i want to play all these cards and then like forget to actually play the game Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) afterwards and obviously you can work around that by having lots of fast cards in your deck um lots of cards that you can just commit to tests because that's something that is different also between lord of the rings and arkham is you always have a use for your cards you can just commit them to tests Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like it's a little self-balancing in that way whereas compared to lord of the rings where like there's definitely a deck type in Lord of the Rings where you just draw five cards and play them all every turn, mm-hmm. <clears throat> because it's not taking up actions, so you can just play them all. And as long as you have the resources, there's really no reason not to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in Lord of the Rings, there's no committing cards, so if you can't play a card and it goes away, then it really was like wasted. Like you, you never, you didn't get the chance to use that card. So it, it's interesting. I. I think that it, it works out pretty well because of actions and whatnot, but mm. yeah, it was it was tough to balance. I think the deck size helps a lot too.
0: Yeah, I'm particularly with a weakness that triggers off your your deck ending, so you've got right. to make sure yeah, you're yeah. kinda of decking out That's true. super fast. Yeah. I wondered because her weakness is hidden and we've seen a bit of hidden in Dream Eaters, I wondered whether Hidden was playing quite an important role for Patrice. I've not taken her through Carcosa yet, but mm-hmm. she gets affected by Hidden in in a slightly more impactful way, I'd say, than any other investigator. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that wasn't so much a balancing factor, so much as just an interesting side effect uh, of any, not just Hidden, but anything that affects her, her hand size is going to hit her a lot harder than other investigators. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, one of the worst weaknesses for her to have is drawing the sign, because yeah. all of a sudden now you're like, oh... I only have, like, a two-card hand, or or less. What's that two-action weakness that reduces join your... You're drawing so the sign. No, yeah, no,
1: there's the an um, encounter set in Dream Eaters that's got... Oh. Uh, Not prismatic? Deeper, deeper Slumber. slumber yeah, 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 Deeper yeah. Slumber. Yeah, that's Man, really I've bad. Man, I've drawn that <laughs> as, as Patrice, and it's just like, well, I'll, I'll be doing nothing
2: then. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Even with her increased deck size, like you're seeing your weaknesses a lot more often. So depending on what basic weaknesses you have in your deck, you've got to really play around that. You know what I mean?
0: hmm Yeah.
2: I mean, amnesia is also horrible for her, right? You draw all five at the same
0: mm-hmm. time, right? So it just like wipes your hand for a turn. But yeah. And you get them then back
1: at like, the well, end of the turn. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I, I I like I very much like how she forces you to view the cards in your hand. Purely for things like the icons or or the fuel for her cards, whether that's the violin or whether you're playing something like um, Cornered, Mm -hmm. she she forces you to make that judgment of the other cards in your hand, rather than thinking of them purely as what they will be once you put them on the table.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I there was definitely a lot of cards I designed, like Fortuitous Discovery, where it's like the first two, the first one or two that you see, you don't really care if they're discarded. Mm -hmm. but then like that last one you really want to play it and then like glimmer of hope where you you don't care if they're discarded you just put them in your discard pile and then you can later on you can add them to your hand from your discard pile and what's cool about those cards is they're they're really good for patrice but they're also really good for like wendy and Ashcan pete and like a lot of earlier survivors who have discarding a card from their hand as a cost for their ability And all of a sudden, now you have all these cards in your deck that you don't really care if they're discarded. You want them to be discarded. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty cool.
0: There's a really nice sort of like adjacency that Patrice doesn't have an ability that she's actively fueling cards for, Mm -hmm. but she ends up fitting into the survivor idea of discarding things being, you know, something that lots of survivors like doing. So it works quite well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Moonstone earlier. Moonstone, obviously you can't play it. You have to discard it to be able to play it it has the same icons as Peter Sylvester level two and it's a level zero card. Like I wondered about where you like, is it, is it a Peter Sylvester replacement for people who haven't bought Dunwich? (laughs) Where did it, where did it come from?
2: No, it definitely wasn't like a replacement or anything like that. I I mean, you can play both at the same time uh, if Mm -hmm. you really want to. Um, It was more just like, I wanted to have a cool card that like, again, comboed with all three of those investigators with like the the two that, you know, you have to discard a card from your hand in order to activate their abilities, and also Patrice just wanting cards that she didn't mind losing from her ability, and so Moonstone was kind of this, uh, like, it it almost could have been any stats, really, uh, (laughs) Mm. and it would have been cool. Um, It could have been all four stats, even, and it would have been pretty cool, but obviously it would have had to be probably higher level (laughs) at that point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like those those just happen to be the stats that we focused on because I think those are like the survivor stats, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's just this weird kind of I don't like you don't even really know how it's helping you. It's just like this this moon rock from the dreamlands, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: People are carrying around with them. Right.
2: <laughs> like, why don't you put that away? No, <laughs> it's making me stronger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it wasn't designed to be like a it wasn't designed to interact with Peter Sylvester really in any way.
0: Cool. Good to know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at this point we're gonna turn towards talking more about the campaign, the Dream Eaters. So if you've not yet played the campaign or you've still got a little bit left to finish because of disruption to the packs getting to you, this is the point to turn off. But if you have and you want to hear more, listen on. So consider yourself warned at this point. Matt, what were your key aims with the Dream Meters? What words and themes were front and center on your mood board? I think we ask you that every time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a good question because I think it's one of the first things that I that we tackle when we're working on a new cycle. Like I mentioned in the design notes, if you're one of the people who ha- managed to get their hands on the final pack, mm-hmm. The Dreamlands is a really interesting location in the Mythos because it's stylistically and thematically like super divorced from everything else that's going on in the Mythos and very, very different um like right off the bat if you if you read the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadat that has like a super different feel from everything mm-hmm. else that we use as like inspiration for our games it's very. It's very much a fantasy adventure, like there's scary things in it, but it's not really so much a horror story. It's a lot more whimsical, it's a lot more adventurous, and it's really just very weird, like very mm. out there. So we kind of wanted to capture that same feeling, and like, this is this is Arkham doing a fantasy adventure, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, at least on the one half, right, the, 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 the slumber uh, campaign and then the other campaign is kind of almost the opposite it's it's like this uh it's the other half of the dreamlands where you're 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 like delving into the underworld which is like the 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 horror place within the dreamlands and like you're dealing with the ramifications of like these other four investigators are are asleep and having this crazy whimsical adventure and the four of us are having like <laughs> this horrible experience yeah Yeah. (laughs) this hellish experience trying to get them to wake up and meanwhile the other four investigators maybe never even want to wake up because they're they're having so much fun which i think is a an interesting story uh in and of itself i feel like touching on what's happening in the
0: waking world is so important for understanding the dreaming Mm -hmm. you know like the whole thrust in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is that idea of wanting to reach a place you haven't reached before and not wanting to wake up. You know, if right. you wake up, the dream is over and you can't get there. So there has to be that fear of what's happening when, when you're awake. And I think often stories about dreaming, you don't have the people looking at the bodies of the people who are asleep. Yeah. So you kind of need that extra element of, like, I guess the dark to their light or whatever its Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm really glad you mentioned this, actually. And this, I think we can't talk about the Dream Eaters without talking about this. The idea that you can play two four-part campaigns or one eight-part campaign. Mm. What came first for you? The idea that it would be two separate things or that it would be one whole campaign that then happened to be divided up? How did that work in your head?
2: Yeah, so actually this was one of one of my like earliest ideas for a campaign in... Uh, in the Arkham LCG, like very early on in the game's development, we, we kind of mapped out a bunch of different campaigns, a bunch of different mm-hmm. campaigns that we could possibly do in the future. Many of which you've seen, some of which you haven't. And one of them, the one, one of the ones I was most excited about was, was basically this one where it's like, we're going to have two parties and we'll split them up and we'll put one through the, 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 the dreamlands and the other ones still in the waking world. And I hadn't hashed out all the details of course, because it was very basic premise, but That was actually Mm -hmm. one of the first ideas that I came up with, and one of the the ideas that I wanted to put in the game as quickly as possible. But it ended up being one of those things where, like, it's just a bit too much for, like, the early game. Like, I think if this was, like, cycle one or two, it would have been very confusing for players, like, having two different Mm -hmm. parties. So we kind of, like, put it off for for the time being. We're like, well, we'll do this later. You know what I mean? Like, once people are, are really familiar with the game and invested in the game. But yeah, it it wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, I had this idea for having too many campaigns, and I had this other idea for Dreamlands, and I like put the two together. It was always kind of planned from the start to be this this premise, like this plot. Just because that was the idea that like got stuck in my head and I couldn't like shake it. (laughs) Yeah. But it, it ended up working out really well because around that around this time when this cycle started coming out, I started hearing this desire this this like clamor for like oh we we wish there was another shorter campaign in the game you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, yeah. it's like one of the cool things about night of the zealot is that you can play it in a weekend uh or in a day even and uh and get like the full experience of a campaign and um we we wanted to to like have that we we wanted to satiate that desire um Mm -hmm. without like having to come up with a new release model that like confuses players because everyone's used to this this cadence of release by now so this was kind of like the perfect opportunity to do to like have our cake and eat it too you know what i mean we can we can do this plot that i've wanted to do for a long time we can have shorter campaigns out there and you know also keep that same release model at the same time it it was kind of perfect in that regard i think it's it's
0: interesting because we've got a question written down here about the sort of fiddliness between tracking uh, two separate campaigns and how much they cross over mm-hmm. and some people have said that there isn't that much actual crossover between the campaigns you know mm-hmm. you, you might pass the cat between two campaigns but that's about it right my question is do you think that's accurate yeah but I, I think also i want to just acknowledge before you answer like the <laughs> release model it. the the release model kind of gets in the way of that a bit that, that mm-hmm. people have had to wait a month between packs and also then two months between carrying on one storyline. Mm-hmm. So it, like, it's weird how normally like people will love that first play through a campaign and experiencing the story for the first time, but maybe the, the two-by-four nature of Dream Eaters doesn't work as well in a release model that's a deluxe and then six packs. I, do, I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
2: So a uh, few things. So one, like, you're definitely right. Uh, that there's there's not like a ton of crossover between the two campaigns and that's that is definitely on purpose because we wanted the players who were playing the campaigns as mini campaigns to not feel like totally slighted like mm-hmm. um if you're playing if you're playing them as an interconnected campaign you get some cool interludes the black cat appears a lot more often and you get some cool choices that you can make and you know spoiler warning one secret ending sort of so to speak that Mm -hmm. you can do if you're doing the interconnected campaigns but for the most part if you do the four-part campaign you're getting a pretty complete experience you're not missing out on that much Mm -hmm. and that's definitely on purpose because we we, you know we want that to be a like a a cool method of playing the campaign we want it to be those there's three different ways that you can play and one doesn't feel like it just is so much better than the other two that you know you never want to do the other two so that's that's one thing. Also, it it does reduce the fiddliness a little bit. There's obviously there's still some fiddliness because there's going to be when there's two campaigns. That's <laughs> <laughs> I don't think yeah. I think that's inherent in it. and I don't think we were trying to shy away from that. But you know, the least the less stuff that you have to track between the two, the 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 easier that'll be. It's important to note that with a lot of the fans that are engaging with the game like on an everyday basis and like a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably are the kinds of people who are picking up the packs the the very second that they drop, which is awesome. But that's also like probably only accounts for maybe half of our total sales a lot of the time. There's a lot of investigators who are going to pick up these packs after the fact. Mm. Probably, I would actually say most players in total are going to pick these up much later like years from now if you look at like the grand total of of players like the number of people who picked up like let's say carcosa cycle when it first came out to the grand total number of players who have Mm -hmm. played the carcosa cycle it's like vastly different right so there's a lot of people who are gonna who are gonna pick this up after the fact all at once probably and they're gonna have some interesting decisions to make with like which scenario do we do first Do we do... Because they don't have to do it in the same order of the release, right? Yeah. And that definitely changes things. And also when you're playing them in a row and you don't have to wait a month, that really changes the way that that the cycle plays out. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. When I play at home solo, uh, an investigator in each campaign, that's what I do because I can... I, I'll play Beyond the Gates of Sleep and then I'll play Waking Nightmare and go straight into Thousand Shapes of Horror. Sure, yeah, because you've ready. already got those decks <laughs> yeah. set up. And, you're and already, then do yeah. two of the other one and so on, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's interesting. It, it, it's kind of like that first opening in Dunwich where you can play one scenario or the other, mm. except you don't have like immediate ramifications right there because, again, we don't know what order you're going to play them in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, or if you're even going to play them interconnected, you know.
0: Again, I've done that as well.
2: I think that I mean that's a,
0: the people who are talking about the game right now are the people who are buying it, right? Yeah, month by month, and it's had an actual impact on them. Sort of waiting two months for the story, but of course, in a couple of months' time, someone who comes to the Dream Eaters just buys all the packs if they can find them, and right. they don't yeah. they don't have any of that experience. So yeah. maybe that's that's skewing some of the conversation around it. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's not it's not even. Like I'm not even necessarily talking about like the casual audience versus the hardcore audience. It's also just like timing, right? Like if you yeah, get into the yeah. game now and uh, you're buying cycles that have been out for for you know years now, it's a very different experience from the players who were were active when that cycle came out. You know? Mm, yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, shall we dive into talking about some scenarios specifically? Yeah, let's do it. So for for these, do we want to just give a, a rough?
1: reminder for folks what happens in that scenario and mm, uh, sure. then we'll dive into into maybe some some cool facts about the scenario just what was going through your head when you designed it and then frank can, yeah <laughs> frank can hit you cool. with his pent-up frustrations of
0: playing them solo <laughs> is that how it comes across peter uh, yeah. on occasion oh, <laughs> very rare occasion frank <laughs> wow. i thought i was the positive
1: one on the podcast yeah. so we start in beyond the gates of sleep uh, which involves us what descending a very large staircase. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the scenario. <laughs> and that's the scenario, yeah. I, yeah. I guess one of the things that sticks out to people, I remember speaking to some friends when the first pack came out and everyone really enjoying their first playthrough uh, and then quickly on subsequent playthroughs thinking to themselves, well, it's a bit of a slog with these first kind of handful of turns doing the same thing every time. I don't know whether you've, you've got any thoughts on that, whether... It almost feels like it might have sat as a as a kind of choose your own adventure intro to the scenario, or al- mm-hmm. as an alternative to the the first few what's the
2: first act or two, right? Yeah, it was that was kind of tough to decide on what I wanted to do for that because of the, on the one hand, I wanted people to play through it because I felt like it was a really important aspect of the Dreamlands, like the the entering of it. We get a lot of detail about it in several different stories and. It's just a really cool like setting that Mm -hmm. that huge staircase and the cavern of flame and Nash and Kamantha and all that stuff. Like I I love all of that and I didn't want it to just be story that you read and then forgot about. Mm -hmm. Right. I wanted you to experience it. I really wanted it to feel like you were doing those actions yourself. But at the same time, it it's so divorced from the rest of the scenario. None of the encounter cards make sense (laughs) in those areas. so we kind of came up with this yeah this like mini kind of prologue where you play through that but there's no encounter deck but you're still kind of pressured to keep going forward because of the extra doom and i think it works out pretty well I, like you're right that it, it does if you play the scenario like eight times in a row it's gonna feel pretty samey but yeah. like mm. ultimately you still have a lot of like micro decisions to make like do i bother playing all my assets out or do i just rush to the end of the staircase and then play it out or like what what exactly are my priorities here you know what i mean mm. i know that a lot of people when they first like played that scenario f- for the first time they they kind of went through their usual setup and then found that they've spent four turns and they're only like one location deep you know what i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and those four turns are suddenly eight doom and that that adds up real fast
0: my goal when i play it solo is to get down as quickly as possible down yeah, the stairs yeah yeah like as, it, each, as it should be, yeah. Yeah, because each turn you spend there is a double turn.
2: Yeah, but also like if you rush too fast and you're not prepared, then when you get to the two guardians and you have to do their their test, if you get stuck there in the cavern of flame, that can really hurt both mm, in terms yeah. of doom and also you take damage over time while you're in there. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: yeah. We've actually got ahead of ourselves because there is a bit of a prologue to Beyond the Gates of Sleep. Right? Where there are the yeah. different dreams. <laughs> and you can dream based on your faction, but you can also dream based on some traits. Mm-hmm. How did you decide which traits deserve dreams?
2: Oh, I wanted there to be one for everything. I really did. I wanted there to be a <laughs> trait for like, or a dream for pretty much every trait in the game. I even wanted to include ones for traits that like weren't on characters yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to kind of like, you know, A, mess with people, and B, like... Foreshadow stuff yeah, that is to yeah. come. Ultimately, I had to cut a lot of it just for space and time. Mm. There was a lot of narrative; it's so many yeah. words, and um, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't really justify having like, you know, six pages of dreams <laughs> as much as I wanted to. <laughs> uh, and while I could have cut down on the the amount of narrative in each dream to compensate ultimately it would have been like two sentences per dream to get it to be where i wanted it to be and it just wasn't worth it so yeah mm. i ended up cutting all of the ones that really just weren't fleshed out at the time um yeah. so it wasn't like it wasn't a decision of like oh this trait has this many investigators and this trait's a really popular one it, it really just ended up being like the ones that were done uh and yeah. the ones that i liked you know the ones that i thought had a cool a cool little narrative to them were the ones that i ended mm. up keeping yeah And obviously, like, the five classes, that for sure is, like, those needed to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I I wanted there to be enough general ones. I think there's two or three general ones. I wanted there to be enough that, like, no matter what combination of investigators you had, you had a dream that you could tell that was different from the other investigators in your party.
0: Yes, I think that's sort of useful that you don't if you have your classic four person party and it's not right well you're the guardian so you're having the guardian dream you're the rogue have the rogue dream it's like oh actually you're a veteran so have the veteran dream yeah yeah kind of play off that instead
2: you can have like four guardians and still Mm. have four different dreams because like yeah maybe you're a hunter you're a warden you're just a a guardian and you're you just take a generic dream you know what i mean Mm. yeah
0: yeah the the other thing I'd really like to know about is that in this scenario you put the enchanted woods locations out. But <laughs> as I've never strayed from the path, I don't know what happens in those <laughs> woods locations. So have, I you, wonder... have you really never strayed <laughs> from the path? <laughs> it's the very first thing you <laughs> do. Surely you have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing, to be more honest, I have never not strayed from the path. There you go. But yeah, but so what's with straying from the path? Because <laughs> what's because what's there's a big. That? XP penalty for not for straying. No, for not not straying from the path. Yeah. It's
2: it's kind of a uh, a few different things. So like for for one, I I wanted players to feel like uh, like they were you know enraptured by the dreamlands. Like I didn't want players to just go and get go and explore these locations because like the game told them to. I wanted them to. Almost the opposite. I wanted them to feel like their curiosity is getting the better of them, right? Mm, yeah, because yeah. that's like a a kind of a recurring theme in the Dreamlands is like the the wonderment and the, the the amazement of like this this magical place. And I was sort of inspired by this video game called The Path, um, which if you've never played it, it's basically like it, it's kind of indie. I wouldn't even call it a horror game, but it's kind of an indie uh, game where you're you're basically Red Riding Hood walking on the path to your grandma's house and the game tells you when you boot it up like don't leave the path and you're like okay and so the first time you play you just walk down the path you get to grandma's house and that's it that game ends it's like five minutes long and you're like what that was the (laughs) game What? this is so weird like what what happens that that doesn't make any sense and then you play again and you start leaving the path and things start happening and then Mm. the game reveals itself to you it's not until you leave the path that the game reveals itself to you and that I thought it was really clever and cool and um i kind of had flashbacks to that game while i was designing this part i kind of wanted players to feel that same way where it's like you're kind of told not to leave the path because scary things might happen and uh then you're you're dropped in this location where you're like well i kind of want to leave the path because this this look this location sucks you know what i mean it, it's mm, yeah. it's like six shroud or eight shroud and, and it's and it's got like uh, you know, a triple action to put a clue on, and then you have to still investigate this really high shred location. Like I, there's got to be a better way. And so then you mm-hmm. leave the path, and all of a sudden it's it's interesting, and there's victory points to be to be found, and all that stuff. So yeah, and uh, maybe maybe the game wags its finger at you a little bit <laughs> for doing that by mm-hmm. recording the campaign log that you've strayed from the path. But that was kind of uh, that was that was really, I think, just me like having fun (laughs) (laughs) it was the stolen luggage all over again yeah i actually originally originally there was supposed to be a little narrative in uh i think in the beginning of search for kadath where if you didn't stray from the path the black cat like scolds you it's like are you do you always just do what you're told (laughs) um and i ended up i ended up actually cutting that because some playtesters were like yeah, it did it did what you told me. Why are you scolding me for it? And I was like, oh, mm. all right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a bit too And I mean, th- you
0: can't escape that, right? There'll be players who didn't stray from the path, who realize that they gave up a lot of XP, and are annoyed. <laughs> there's no payoff for that. Like, yeah. Whatever you do, even if the payoff was fun flavor, they'd be like, oh no, you know, so yeah.
2: Well, what what ended up happening, it's actually really funny because, so again, I I've, I say this a lot, and it's not just a cop out it's not just an excuse it's it's a fact when when a game when a scenario gets released to the greater public it's seen by like thousands of times more players than uh, ever saw it before that right mm-hmm. and uh, i always kind of figured that everyone would immediately leave the path i didn't expect anyone to want to stay both personality wise just like wanting to see more of the scenario like all oh, these face down locations i want to see what they are they're interesting to me um, and also just you know you're confronted with this extreme challenge of like how do i get all of the clues that i need mm-hmm. at this mm-hmm. location without leaving the path i'm gonna leave the path it's easier but i think uh i was surprised by the amount of people who when told not to leave the path were like okay <laughs> you're right, i'm not gonna <laughs> leave the path then um or and or saw it as a really interesting challenge like all yeah. right i'm gonna build my deck in such a way that i don't have to leave the path that's an interesting challenge so yeah in retrospect i i wish i had maybe had some stuff in there that like are repercussions for leaving the path or bonuses that you get for not leaving the path
3: Mm.
2: and uh yeah who knows maybe we'll see maybe we'll see that in the future but yeah in retrospect that's something i didn't expect Uh, players will always surprise me you know (laughs) The, the crazy thing is like you get your experience
0: in the dreamlands through exploration and through right. finding things out. Right. So it can't, t- I'm obviously not telling you how to do your job, right? <laughs> it can't have a payoff. Like you get 20 X, yeah, for following XP, the rules. You know yeah. 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 <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I almost don't even know what it would be, but it's, it's interesting to think about. I, I do think it, it helps to foreshadow kind of the themes of the Dreamlands of like mm-hmm. wanting to explore and see more of it. And it kind of foreshadows one of the possible endings where you stay in the Dreamlands forever because you never want to leave because it's mm. such a, it's such a, uh, like a, not like, you know, great, like, <laughs> Like every, not everything in the Dreamlands is happy and nice. I mean, right in yeah. that very scenario, you have zoogs that uh, will, you know, bite your hands off. But like at the same time, <laughs> it, it's kind of like this, fingers, You're never yeah. going to get this experience in the waking world. You're, you're never going to feel yeah. the same way. So
0: this actually leads us really neatly on to search for Cadath, because mm. if you weren't sure about exploration in Beyond the Gates of Sleep search for Kadath is like no go explore we're going to split the map up into five different areas and you can go and um sort of roam the dreamlands as a whole Mm -hmm. to me the scenario is epic that's the the adjective i'd use but how did you go about creating this epic feeling
2: (laughs) epic epic is definitely the right word yeah
0: yeah and it's but it's still locations it's still enemies Mm Mm-hmm. It's actually not even that big an act or agenda deck. It's a two-card agenda deck. Mm-hmm. But yet, there's still this feeling of like expanse and travel.
2: Yeah, it, this was one of the toughest scenarios to design because, to me, the Dreamlands is such a huge place with so many different locations. And even this scenario with how... Uh, we will keep saying epic as many times as possible. Take a shot every time I say it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Even with how epic it is, I, I think we only touched upon maybe like half of the locations in the Dreamlands. Mm. There's just so many places I wanted to hit, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get to all of them. So I wanted to have a scenario that crams as many in as possible without like overwhelming the players. So there were a lot of goals in this scenario that I wanted to achieve. Like, I wanted to explore lots of the dreamlands. I wanted to feel like a quest. But I also didn't just want to kind of throw all these words at you in a vacuum where you're just like, what is Hazleth Clegg and why should I be excited (laughs) for it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's where the the story cards on the back came from, because I wanted to kind of tell some of the story of these locations and explain some of like why are they cool why are they interesting what is sarnath and like what's the story there and that sort of thing without just like information overload so Mm -hmm. you kind of get the story after you've explored it instead of ahead of time and originally i think i did have like all of the locations sprawled out on like a huge crazy map and it was just too much like it's it's a huge huge map like there's like I think, uh, 15 locations in that scenario or more? Yeah. Yeah. More, right? Because there's the
0: Timeless Realm that's five locations. Right, right, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's just, it it was too big for it to just be one map. And I also wanted to get the sense that, like, you were sailing. Like, you were going Mm. from one location to another, and those locations are really far away from one another. Because it didn't make sense to, this is the scenario with the biggest scale that we've ever done. Yeah. It didn't really make sense. It's already a stretch to move from Ulfar to like Dilath Lean in two actions, right? So yeah. like, I didn't want it to then go from Dilath Lean to Hazeth Cleg like it's nothing. Like it, that's, that mm-hmm. you just went across an ocean. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I wanted to capture that feeling as well. And that's where the, the different acts came in, where I was like, okay, I know what I'll do. Like I'll, I'll actually have the map move like you're going from continent to continent. And that captures both like the epic feeling, the time frame. It makes it feel like you're going across the ocean in a matter of weeks, Mm. as opposed to like just an action. And it simplifies the the play state because you're swiping all the actions off the board and replacing, or all the locations off the board, and replacing them with new ones. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. As you were describing the big sort of eighteen card setup, it just made me realize that you could be elusive. And you could elusive from, like, Ulthar to to wherever else. (laughs) And, like, that would actually really completely ruin the effect you're going for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah. A Tool being elusive in Arkham is not the same as A Tool being elusive in the (laughs) Dreamlands.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It it was very... It took a lot of iteration to get to the version that, that you guys see.
0: How did you choose what locations to feature and what not? Did you have any scheme that you could use to decide what what made the grade?
2: Right. Well once I once I settled on this, this uh this continent idea or this act idea where like each act was gonna be a set of locations, it was about finding sets of locations that were in close proximity to one another that like fit into like one realm, right? Mm, that also had interesting stories that I could tell on the backside, right? Yeah. Um, And there were definitely places that I didn't touch on. Like, obviously, the entire north, like, the entire plateau of Lang, is omitted. (laughs) Yeah. Mostly because we're going to go there later, but also because I didn't want there to be more than, like, the number of locations that were included. Um, But there's other areas that that are omitted as well. I'm actually going to pull up a, a map of the Dreamlands right now because I don't remember all of them off the top of my head but there's like this there's like these crazy jungles uh to the mm, west Yeah yeah that uh that I didn't have room for Yeah there's a bunch of there's so many cities I mean the dreamlands is huge there's the entire like fantastic realms to the to the southwest there's the nomad lands there's the Lo- the whole like Lomar area to the northwest it's crazy yeah there's so much that I could have included um, there's a
1: guy who does I can't remember his name now he does um, like D&D dungeon art for, for famous mm. modules like, oh, when someone says his name I'll remember it but he's done a map of the, the Dreamlands as well and I almost found it more fun playing with the map alongside me mm. Is it, it, yeah, yeah. It, it highlighted that feeling of being on a quest and I, I don't know maybe to some people it might feel like it was antithetical to this this concept of being in an unknown unexplored space but I, for me the, the map and that that kind of added to the feeling of, of grand adventure which i feel is one of the ones you we were really trying to capture
2: yeah i agree i think if you've never done that before obviously you don't like don't use it as a gameplay supplement but just like having a map of the dreamlands up on your computer or something while you're playing kind of puts everything into perspective you get to see both like the scale of the dreamlands and you can kind of see like the route that you're taking and it really adds to the the feeling of being on this this journey i just remember it actually there was yeah i did have cled as an area at one point and i had to cut it for space unlucky cled <laughs> yeah sorry clad uh ultimately i think the ones that i decided on were the ones that i had uh good ideas for what to write on the backside. you know what i mean yeah that was i uh, okay, think a big element that of makes it. sense yeah uh and i'm really happy this is i think the scenario that has my favorite artwork in the entirety of the cycle
0: mm-hmm. what what is it
2: Oh, just in general, not, like, any specific piece, but, like, the oh, all okay, of the locations. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to my art director, and I was, like, who was... Uh, Jeff Johnson and Deborah Garcia are the two art directors for Arkham. And I was, like, I really want this to feel different from the rest of Arkham. I really want this to feel, like, epic and marvelous and really kind of not, like, the same game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. man, they took that and ran with it because they found some amazing artists who knocked it out of the park. I'm thinking uh, like Kadatheron and uh, the city that appears on no map and hazeth Clegg, the Temple of Unattainable Desires. I think all four of those are the same artist. They're all so amazing. I want all of them as playmats. <laughs> mm,
0: yeah, yeah. I was going to say, actually, it's one of those scenarios that you can spend ages just looking at the location art mm-hmm. because there's so much detail on them they're mm-hmm. really cool yeah I'm glad you mentioned that actually
2: the city that appears on no map I think is definitely like my favorite artwork in the in the entire cycle
1: such a such a dreamlands name as well oh my god yeah <laughs> it's so cool you can't yeah. get any more dreamlands than that <laughs> pretty much man these are it's it's the they are I'm just going through the art now I've done this beforehand but it really um, emphasizes the, the the variety you've got yeah in the yeah, dreamlands yeah. isn't it Oh, yeah. It's like from the high fantasy to the kind of low gritty gothic.
2: Yeah, Saranian is another uh, city that is just gorgeous to look on. It's like this castle in the sky on a floating island (laughs) with a ship floating through the clouds. Just like, I mean, if you looked at that in a vacuum, you would have no idea that it's from Arkham.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I follow a couple of Arkham artists on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll put art up where you think, that can't be from an Arkham card. And yeah. they'll put something up without saying what it's from. Right. And then it turns up on an Arkham card and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. This glorious, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Like if it's a sort of creepy ramshackle old house, maybe with like, you know, some shadows and things, you think, oh, okay, that's probably Arkham. Right. But when it's, yeah, glorious
2: landscape or something like that. When it's like a city of like crystal towers on a mountain. top, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, that's Lord of the rings. Surely. Yeah. <laughs> Nope. Actually, Lord of the Rings is, like, far more grounded than the Dreamlands.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely.
2: So,
1: in, I, th- I must admit, there's two of my favorite,
0: I think it's two of my favorite
1: locations in this one. So, it, sorry, we're moving on to Dark Side of the Moon here. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It has a really interesting mechanic. So, so, so the idea in this is you come, then, to the moon to free uh, Virgil Grey. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm throwing inverted commas around free Virgil Grey there. Free yeah. Virgil Grey. <laughs> And you what, you recu- rescue him on the surface and then you end up going through the moon to mm-hmm. escape from the other side. That's right, isn't it? You go through this Yeah, huge, you go through the
0: core. Yeah. From the dark side to the light.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's this really cool mechanic which makes it feel like a prison break, which is the ever-present uh, alarm level. Mm-hmm. And things feel very easy when the alarm level's low. Right. Uh, to the extent where you're like, well, is this such a big deal? Uh, and then it when it ramps up pretty quick, things start to get bad very quickly. But one of the things I've always really liked about this is there's this ever present threat of the moon lizard. <laughs> yes. Which is sort of like yeah. rumbling towards you. <laughs> <laughs> Love that guy. Uh yeah, yeah. And then he crops up and he's um he's huge. <laughs> Um, yeah. but, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the alarm level, actually? Because I think that's, that's probably one of the more novel mechanics on this, which almost feels like it's a mechanic that could be used uh, in other scenarios as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think you touched on it really well with your explanation of it being a prison break. I think that was kind of like my goal with it as, as well, was I wanted it to feel like a scenario where you're rewarded for being stealthy and sneaky and having high agility and evading and that sort of thing. Um, and not just like making tons of noise and showing up with a Tommy gun and just like pop 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 right. <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I I really just wanted it to feel like you're kind of an intruder in this this place where you're not really supposed to be. The Moon in the original Dream Quest story is very hostile. Um, it's filled mm-hmm. with uh, Moon beasts who are agents of Nyarlathotep and other crazy monsters. It, it's really it's where the journey starts to get kind of hairy for randolph that that in the underworld those are like the two places where it starts to get like more of a horror kind of feel but also like the moon you're like you're walking on the surface of the moon it's pretty marvelous right like it's (laughs) it's got its own vibe i don't know it doesn't feel like arkham still so i i I wanted to get that sense across too of like wonderment but also you're scared (laughs) so the alarm level was kind of designed to make you feel stressed out about being caught you know what i mean without just having there be a mechanic where it's like all right you're caught like game's over you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah.
0: how long have you had a sort of non-fighting alarm level style scenario waiting to be done it feels like a a really good fit for arkham
2: yeah i mean we've we've touched on it a little bit before i I would say like for the greater good is another scenario that has that same feeling where like if you're defeating enemies that's bad it's going to add doom and they're going to notice I would say like maybe Early House Always Wins kind of has that vibe too like the first the first agenda like if you yeah if you uh if you just attack someone all of a sudden everyone's like what are you doing <laughs> you're in the middle yeah. of a casino stop but yeah this one I think is the first one where it feels really more like you're in hostile territory and mm-hmm. everything's set against you and you kind of have to sneak your way through Uh, I know some people called it, like, the Metal Gear Solid scenario, and that's not really (laughs) that far off. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it it should kind of feel that way. Um, But also, anytime that we can do a scenario where there's, like, a button or a lever that we can push, pull to, like, add and remove difficulty, that's great. That opens up design space so easily. Mm -hmm. So the very second that we have an alarm level, it's like, okay, well... You can have a treachery that adds to the Alarm level. You can have an enemy that adds to the Alarm level. You can have an enemy that reduces the Alarm level when you defeat it. I mean, there's so many things that you can do. And it just really, those cards just designed themselves at that point, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: They, like, all key off it.
2: Right, yeah.
0: Are there any difficulties when offering a sort of a
2: scenario that's not
0: necessarily about the classic fight-your-way-through-everything?
2: Yeah, I mean right off the bat you you contend with the question of like what happens if you do bring like a what what in D and D terms we would call a murder hobo character through this scenario where like all they do is fight and all they do is kill and all they want to do is kill. Like what mm. happens? Are, are do they not have fun? Do they still have fun? Like so we have to include some cards that still kind of like, you know, allow them to do what they want to do and still have fun without, you know, killing that mood, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say like the Moon Beast is that card for this scenario where they show up, they add to the alarm level for everybody, but if you manage to defeat them, they reduce the alarm level. So now you have this really tough enemy. It's got like five health or something that if you defeat it, then that's great. That's that's gravy for everybody. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then you also have a lot of cards that are the opposite where they reward you for having high agility and they reward you for evading instead of combat and that sort of thing.
0: I think it's a really cool scenario works really well just the thematicness of being on the moon and creeping around and yeah, yeah i think Kat- cats from saturn are, are <laughs> i love the cats really like nasty oh, iteration of swarm cards you know yeah like, if you have a two health swarm enemy that can be really
2: challenging and evasion yeah.
0: becomes really important then yeah.
2: I, I love that card because it's it, yeah it's a two health swarm enemy with a lot of swarm cards if you have like three or four alarm level but it's still like not a problem if you can evade it because you remove one every time you evade it or every time yeah. it moves after you even so if you evade it and then move two locations away you're probably fine um, yeah and i think that's really cool i like that design a lot as easy to evade as they are to, to punch yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's only to evade so it's kind of like unless you only have maybe one or two of them in front of you you're probably evading it um, yeah. Nine times out of ten, the, actually, the toughest thing in this scenario for me to design was the story because I wanted to, I wanted to explore both the dark side and the light side of the moon. But even in the dreamlands, walking across the surface of the moon just did not seem plausible or realistic at all, right? And so the whole like going through the core was me trying to find a creative solution for that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. What What I really like actually is how Dark Side of the Moon and Point of No Return echo each other in terms of story. Like, they're both about some kind of descent through something. Mm-hmm. I imagine that was intentional, but it works really nicely as, as a pair. But yeah, yeah. Both parties' third act or third scenario is one where they're having to find sort of... They're going to have to lower themselves into some kind of darkness, the Sea of Pitch or the Black Core, and work their way through it, which I think's really... There's a really nice symmetry there.
2: Well, actually, that's that's like a recurring motif pretty much all throughout the entirety of the cycle. Um, almost every scenario, with the exception of like search for Kadath and maybe where the gods dwell, almost every scenario has some kind of descent that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very much like a motif of the dreamlands. Mm. Right, right. Starting with the staircase, and then in you have another the staircase basement. in Thousand yeah. Shapes of Horror. You've yeah, got yeah. the descent through the core of the moon in Dark Side of the Moon. In Point of No Return, you're constantly just descending the entire time. Yeah. yeah. Even Weaver of the Cosmos, you're kind of descending yeah. down Drop the web down. to get to the the bottom. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, that's really nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that this was one of the motifs that I think really shone through.
0: That sounded like a cat.
2: <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <that's laughs> come, my my come cat is <laughs> uh, very confused whenever I am talking uh, with people on uh, on the internet because she thinks that I'm talking to her. But I'm not. I'm not talking to you. I'm not. Ugh. See if she has anything to say to our listeners. <laughs>
0: our listeners will be delighted. Yeah.
2: Say something, Kitty. We're talking about you. We're talking about cats in general. This is the cycle about cats. Okay. Oh, she doesn't to. we got a little grumble left. Oh, okay. Yeah, she she doesn't <laughs> want to be held.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, should we continue on to the finale here, where the gods dwell? Mm, let's do it. This is crazy. Like I, I think, without wanting to jump into um, the finale of the other side of the, the 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 box, the Weaver of the Cosmos. I think it's it's an, really interesting to contrast these two finale scenarios, mm. and to compare them with the other finale finale scenarios that have gone before. Uh, honestly, I think these are the two best fights against an old one that we've had so far these two scenarios I think are really really good they're both good in their own different ways and they work very well as a pair mm. so I um, mean congratulations on that it works really well thank you <laughs> but was that a, a deliberate attempt early on to have to have two finales that that that, that operated in a very different way one very much a uh, stand up and fight and the other one more of a thinky way around the problem
2: yeah definitely yeah that was very much the intent from the get-go and also like Kind of as you alluded to, like I also wanted both of these finales to feel different from every other one that we've done in the past and, and, you know, better. <laughs> Cause uh, I think having a strong finish is really important for mm. any story. Uh, and doubly so for a story that is interactive, like a video game or a board game or whatever. So I'm glad, I'm glad that they both were enjoyable and resonated with everyone because I put, yeah, I think I put a lot into these two scenarios. I just um, need
1: to, to get the positive out of the way about the scenario before Frank <laughs> tears, tears into it with his, his criticisms. That's um, fair. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's such a novel mechanic and to an extent what I'm alluding to, for, for anyone not aware, is that this game is, this scenario, sorry, is far more difficult if you're playing solo because of the way things scale. Mm. You're looking for fewer cards in a deck that's equally big and it can it can get a bit more difficult, a bit more punishing when you're playing solo. Um, I don't know whether you
0: want to chime in here, Frank. No, I mean, I have to be careful that I don't sound negative. Just, <laughs> you can you sound just... as negative as you want. I'm not going to... No, more for Peter, because <laughs> he's going to hold it against me. Oh, yeah. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I find that this is probably one of the hardest scenarios I've played in solo, and mm-hmm. like it feels particularly taxing once you're in the towers and trying to get around the towers, get the clues... Uh, spend actions, your hand fills up with hidden cards. So, I mean, the question I wrote is, is it too hard? <laughs> which I don't know if you can answer. Um, I, yeah, I also got to say I love it as a scenario. I think it's a really good scenario. Mm. I love that there's a location with 12 clues on it. <laughs> like, as just uh, the surprise part of that, of going, wait, what? You know, there's so much I really admire about this scenario, but I find the, what it asks of the solo player really steep.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, like, When we were playtesting this scenario, I don't think that came up quite as often. And I think one of the reasons why... I mean, obviously, we can only playtest so much, right? And we probably Mm -hmm. just got really lucky in a lot of our tests. Because I never had quite that much of an issue. Like, obviously, you have to go through the deck uh, a lot deeper to get... uh, What is it? Two copies of Nier Lothotep if you're playing solo? Yeah. So that's an issue. But also, like, if you're playing in solo, you don't have to do the weird, like... Uh, like headspace of, okay, I have a copy of Nyarlathotep, and he's got a copy of Whispering Chaos, and that's the tower over there that we need to, like, who do we give these to? And we also can't talk about it, because if we mention Nyarlathotep by name, you go insane. Like, you don't have to do that whole dance. Um, mm-hmm. You just yeah. have the cards in your hand, and you go, okay, this is the best thing for me to do. I'll go there and do it.
1: I, I did I did like that dance. Sorry to sidetrack you, Matt, yeah, I did yeah, like yeah. that that aspect of it, the the kind of eyebrow wiggling. Yeah. <laughs> well I, I might yeah. want to go to this location over here, kind of thing. And actually right. the first time we played, um, in I think in either the first or the second encounter round uh Mythos phase, two of us ended with Nyalaf Hotep in our hands. Mm-hmm. And then the third player the we were asking rules questions um, or you know, one of my my friends Neil was asking rules questions of me, and I was like, "Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Let me get the rule book." And <laughs> my other friend is sitting there thinking, "What are you talking about? It's like you're having a <laughs> a conversation. I've got no idea." <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I hoped that that would balance it, itself out, where like the benefits of playing solo would outweigh the the penalties. I suppose, obviously, based on the the feedback that I've gotten, that is not the case. It's definitely no. harder solo. And uh, hopefully that's okay. I mean basically that's not rare for there to be a scenario that's you know harder in solo or harder in four player. That's there's, it's going to happen from time to time yeah. that there's going to be a scenario that's harder in one direction or the other and it's just a, a matter of knowing that going into it and hoping that you can get make it through on the other side. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like um, I'm not anti difficult scenarios. I quite enjoy difficult scenarios. <laughs> well, especially um, for a finale. Like if yeah, you're gonna for have a finale exactly baby. and and, yeah. and for Arkham of course yeah I mean what's been really intriguing about this is some people have suggested that you should look at more cards sure when you spend your clues in solo yeah so like use and I mean we've scale. done that
2: before even like jazz mulligan uh is the perfect example of like we've done exactly that so yeah. it, like honestly if you want to play it that way you have my blessing go ahead and do it because I think that that mm. would be probably all we would have to do I think to fix it you know what I mean
0: yeah, and the other suggestion that I thought was a really intriguing one was removing some of the hidden cards that aren't related to your objective, mm. because they're hidden cards that lose some of their impact because you're playing solo. Sure. So like they lose the like social aspect of oh he's got a he's got a hidden card in his hand doesn't mean he's got a copy of Nile Athertap. Oh no, it's just uh, is it called uh, Restless Whispers? Right, Something there are Restless yeah, Journey,
2: and then there's also the ones oh from yeah, Restless the, Journey, yeah. the the yeah. the generic. Yeah, the lore well.
0: of Igoroth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, they're pretty painful for, <laughs> for, for brain power. But yeah, no. It's a, I've I've enjoyed that aspect of people trying to diagnose what they find hard about it, for sure. And I have beaten it in Solo, I should add. Nice. It's just, it's rare. It's something to yeah, build it's up for. Yeah, difficult. <laughs> yeah. I think the the other thing that's sort of fascinating around that whole Solo versus multiplayer is that Maybe there's something about the experience of losing in solo that can feel more crushing because there's not a group and people going, "Oh, we did all we could." Mm-hmm. You know, left. You know, I, I, we had a couple of emails in from solo players saying, "Like they rely on the community more because they don't have that immediate community around their table." Sure, and that feeling of like, "Wow, this really crushed me." Am I bad at the game?
2: Yeah, and you also don't have that like it's not as easy to be like, am I playing correctly? Like, did I mess something up? Because you don't have other people to to point out mistakes and uh, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So it's, uh, like, I I know that I'm saying that not necessarily just from Arkham perspective, but other solo games that I've played, where if I get absolutely crushed, it's, it's, uh, I have to be like, did I do this right? Let me go through the rules (laughs) again, make sure I didn't, like, miss an important rule of, like, I'm supposed to draw more cards or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah, yeah. sure.
0: That's definitely one of the
2: things around being
0: a solo player that's mm-hmm. one has to work with.
2: Yeah, for sure. So that's the
0: Dreaming side wrapped up, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. I think that finale, just to echo what Peter said, it feels to me uh, quite cinematic, the idea of Nyarlathotep blinking and appearing in different places, almost like a Hall of Mirrors style fight you know you're dashing from one tower to another to try and tackle him it's yeah really, and, and just yeah, like really fun
2: whispering in your head and you have to like you know figure out where he is what he is like what form he's taking that sort of thing mm, yeah yeah i love the, the the truth and fiction uh aspect of it and i love the agenda text in that scenario i just went ham <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just cool very fun to read that out to
0: my multiplayer group yeah, where it's like wait, sorry, what? You're <laughs> watching me? Hang I'm, on, I'm yeah. sorry. Is
2: the game talking to me right now? I think the yeah. game is talking to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. good. I also yeah. really love. Uh, it, it's such a random little detail, but I shout out to the. Um, I think it's the act deck in that scenario that has the art of uh, like the investigator in front of the gates to Kadav, and the black cat is sitting on their shoulder. Mm. I yeah, love, yeah. I love that artwork. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. To see the black cat like i i love um i mean obviously this is going to be my opinion based on like me being the the writer here but i just love whenever story details like that seep into the artwork It just makes it feel so cohesive
0: yeah it's that point then where as a player you're like oh this is a-
2: actually oh, us. a cat yeah, yeah. A <laughs> right it's yeah. not just a random br- that's that's the cat right there like there he is <laughs>
1: Yeah. I definitely remember a feel of this, of there being nowhere to hide as well, because it, it's mm, one of those yeah. maps where everything's connected. There's only two connections away from anywhere else. Right. And when that doll shows up...
0: <laughs> <bloody thing. laughs> the D-hole, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like, what What do you do? You know, six health and six fight. Well, I guess we evade it, so one of you <laughs> is sitting here to deal with it, <laughs> yeah. while the rest of us run around trying, trying to sort this thing. Yeah, it felt like very... Very enclosed.
0: Claustrophobic.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Which I guess is also what the first scenario in the waking side feels a little bit like, because we're investigating a hospital in Waking Nightmare where the dreamers are sleeping and there are spiders coming out of their beds and like crawling (laughs) over the bodies and things like that. In terms of tone, it's so far removed from um beyond the gates of sleep right it feels like it feels like it could almost be back to night of the zealot and that feeling of like it being at night and creepy things going on in an enclosed building,
2: yeah, I think that's a really good equivalence actually i never even I never even thought about that, but yeah it it is pretty similar to the gathering in that. You're very much just in a normal place with really abnormal things happening. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And you kind of get this feeling of, like, is this even happening? Like, what? what is real? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Talk to us about the infestation bag.
2: Yeah. So, believe it or not, actually, uh, a lot of the scenarios on this side of the campaign were designed by Daniel Schaefer, who, before Jeremy joined the team, he was sort of part-time on Arkham. Mm-hmm. Daniel Schaefer is one of the key Forge developers and he's also uh he was the lead developer for Game of Thrones LCG for a while. And um so he's uh he was basically he tackled a couple scenarios just like the initial design and then I kind of developed them after the fact. Yeah. And this was one of the ones that that he did the most work on and he wanted there to be this uh this feeling of like the this growing infestation where The spiders are weaving their web as they do and Mm. it's consuming the hospital and making things worse over time both because it adds pressure to the investigators and the scenario and also because it's just cool and thematic yeah yeah but like there was a bit there's the big dangling question of like how like how do we handle this because it can't just happen every turn if it happens every turn it's going to be an eight turn scenario and that's it (laughs) yeah so, we wanted there to be an element of randomness to it, and we went through a lot of different like ways that that could happen. But if it was too random, if it was like draw a card off the top of the deck and like this might happen or something, or if it was like you know a total chance somehow, then you kind of like the 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 difficulty of the scenario can really skew based on mm-hmm. like how lucky you are, and that kind of sucks. And then at some point, I don't remember how it happened, but at some point we were like, oh my god, we're so stupid. We already have a thing in the game that is like a method of determining chance, and that is the chaos (laughs) bag, right? Like it's right there, but we, and like what's cool about the chaos bag is you can remove tokens from it and have them stay out of the bag. So we were like, okay, if you just had like a separate bag, with its own tokens in it and we have all these extra tokens because we the core set comes with four copies of every token that we don't use all the time uh, of the symbols i mean so it's very much like oh we'll just throw those in a bag and when you and when you remove one you like kind of set it aside and that way you're guaranteed to eventually get the infestation you know what i mean
0: yes yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. you can't it's not like rolling a dice where if you can keep rolling exactly you never you never get infestation
2: exactly exactly so that was kind of the moment where it all came together, and uh, and obviously there was sort of the, that lingering question of like, you know, are we going to have enough tokens to do it? Are players going to like having a separate bag, or is that going to be annoying to them? But as we were playtesting it, players were like, oh my god, I get to use more tokens, that's, that's great, I love tokens. <laughs> so yeah, it ended up working really well.
0: I think it's really, I, like, I really like the infestation bag because it feels like I have agency <laughs> over the spreading infestation. Like uh, a couple of unlucky pulls and it seems to be spreading really quickly. Mm-hmm. A few lucky pulls and I'm really breathing that sigh of relief. Like, okay, phew, it's another tablet. We're safe for another round. Like, right, right. Let's keep pushing.
2: Yeah, yeah. and what, what I like about it is it's not just the two results too. There's the there's the one result that spawns spiders as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's... And, once we settled on that we were like oh we can we can do all kinds of stuff we can have treachery cards that add uh that like make you do an infestation test or that you know tweak uh, or locations that tweak what the symbols do and stuff like that yeah
0: no so it's, it's i think it's a really nice detail because it takes what feels like very classic arkham but adds this extra element and it's like you say it's a clock but without it being a linear clock yes yeah, guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, for sure yeah, that makes sense
2: it, it's a clock that has faces that can change every time you play.
1: Yeah. Oh, I want to shout out either my favorite or second favourite location ability in the game. Can I? Is that okay? Yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, the basement where you can skip straight into another location.
2: The the, stair- <laughs> falling the stairwell. Falling down the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Run very gracefully down the stairs <laughs> and trying <laughs> not to fall <laughs> over. <laughs> no, it's definitely it's supposed to be Yeah. I didn't I forgot that you just take two <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's it's like uh you know you're running down the staircase and whoops <laughs> it's the balcony of the ward theater right
0: exactly yes, <laughs> yes yeah
1: yeah isn't isn't there a there's a balcony in the hotel as well isn't there that you can yeah it almost feels like a, a bit of a concession to because you save that action moving into one of the locations it it I don't know, maybe this is just my my psychology interpreting this in a particular way. It feels a bit like it takes the sting out of having to go to multiple locations if you don't get the right one initially.
2: Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And it's also just, you know, one additional thing to reward you if you're playing a high agility investigator.
1: Yes. Sorry, Frank, you you were going to go on and say something interesting.
0: I just wanted to acknowledge the other thing is you get this really nice curveball at the end of Waking Nightmare if you've played it second in the deluxe. That Randolph Carter's there.
2: Oh my god, yeah.
0: (laughs) And we've not really mentioned Randolph too much so far, but you know, by the end of Beyond the Gates of Sleep and Waking Nightmare, each party might have a copy of Randolph. Mm -hmm. And I spent quite a long time scratching my head, being like, "So wait, he's asleep and awake, or it's (laughs) happening at a different time?" The penny didn't drop for me about Randolph's true nature. I just thought, oh, this is a weird thing that will get, like, is he that good a dreamer that he can dream even while he's awake or mm-hmm. something like that? But yeah, I think there is that nice surprise. I mean, it's not too big a surprise because you've set Randolph Carter aside in the setup. But sure, yeah. You find Randolph Carter awake in the hospital. Yeah. Like, having to work out who, which is the real Randolph.
2: And I do think, I think some people expected it to be the situation where, like, whichever one you play first, you get Randolph. And the second yeah. one, if you play the second one, it's like, oh, you don't get Randolph because he's in that other campaign or something. But yeah, mm-hmm. like, and it's not just if you play this one second, it's regardless of what order you play them in, you're going to play one of them, be like, oh, cool, Randolph Carter, I know him. And then, like, play the second one and be like, wait, <laughs> wait, Rand- Randolph Carter? Randolph's-, <laughs> Randolph's here too? Like, what? Uh, yeah, I agree. That's one of my favorite aspects of this story. And I love, I love how the Black Cat is sort of an audience stand in when piecing that together as well if you if you go through that journey where the black cat has a hunch and shows up and uh i i I love the interlude where the black cat shows up in the real world and is like huh yeah i have to go check on something (laughs) and then just leaves and then shows up again in the in the dreamlands and is like yeah okay yep he's here too okay all right yep that's um
0: I mean that's pretty subtle when you're first playing it that it right. might not actually be apparent what the cat is checking on. Yeah, yeah. Particularly yeah, yeah. if you're not you're not playing the scenarios like in the same session or something like that. But I think it works really well. I, I was going to say actually when we were talking about Dark Side of the Moon, Peter, you mentioned Virgil Gray and Virgil like gives you stuff when you find signs of the gods in um, search for Cadath, and then in Dark Side of the Moon, Virgil gives you stuff as your alarm level goes up, mm-hmm. and at that point for me, I was thinking. This Virgil guy is shifty. Like, he Seems <laughs> to be enjoying our alarm level going up. What's going on here? But of course, Virgil's just the kind of like a gullible tourist, right? Right. Yeah. He's, that's exactly. He's just enjoying the thrill of you know the chase and the, the hide and seek nature of that.
2: Yeah. There, and there's that there's that line in Dark Side of the Moon where you go through the core and he turns up at the other side and everyone's like just lucky to be alive, and he's like, well, this will make her in an interesting chapter of my story, and you're like, shut <laughs> yeah, up, <exactly>. Virgil! <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. and, but it was me
0: thinking that Virgil might be bad, right? that then really got me down the track of who who else is a traitor here? Right. And, and Peter and I were swapping messages being like, well, it might be Virgil, but it might be Randolph, there's two copies of him.
2: <laughs> and of course, by this point in time, you've played through, and I, I'm not going to spoil it just in case people here are, have played the dream eaters, but not played any other cycles beforehand. But by this point, we've been portrayed a number of times in (laughs) Arkham stories. So you're like on the look at, you're like ready for it. You're like, all right, someone's going to betray me.
0: Precisely. Let's move on. Thousand shapes of horror.
2: I I definitely want to talk more about Randolph when we get to the end.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, Let's for me. I I've, I've written this as a note for Weaver of the cosmos, but I think the flow from thousand shapes of horror to point of no return to Weaver of the cosmos is maybe one of my favorite things in Arkham, because it feels like it's the complete opposite of the huge epic scale of the dreaming side. Mm. It's one haunted house with one stairwell, and then the the next scenario happens immediately afterwards, and then that scenario leads straight in. There's like no gap in time or space yeah. you just you yeah. just move straight through. I love that it starts at a haunted house
2: yeah it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because i i don't i haven't heard a lot of people touch upon that but yeah there's a huge time dilation that happens mm. between these two campaigns which makes a lot of sense for the dreamlands but you kind of like in, in the in the dreamlands campaign it takes place over the matter of like months really uh like yeah. it's this huge epic quest and with with the uh the other campaign it's like a night you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. And like that's it yeah
0: Again, reminds me of Night of the Zealot. There's that real like momentum behind. You leave your house, you go search right. Arkham before midnight, and then you rush to the woods, and it feels like a similar thing here. You go looking for inspiration at the haunted house and the silver key, and that, that leads you straight away down the steps and things like that. Mm-hmm. We've had other haunted houses. How much are you keeping an eye on on what's gone before in terms of like the secret name, Miskatonic mm-hmm. Museum, sort
2: of? yeah i mean we're definitely we want to make sure that those scenarios don't feel too similar but at the same Mm -hmm. time like the the idea of a haunted house or mansion is pretty staple to the arkham universe there's just so many iconic locations in arkham that are that right like the witch house yeah yeah. uh, pretty much every building in arkham could be a haunted house at any given moment (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, (laughs) i mean you've got like the museum in dunwich and like Uh, the the university and like there's even like a ton of locations that we haven't even touched upon so i don't see that going away anytime soon but we're also Mm -hmm. definitely we want to make sure that they don't feel too samey so they all have like their thing that they're doing Mm -hmm. with thousand shapes of horror for me that thing and again this was another scenario that daniel uh designed at first i don't know why i'm calling him daniel we always call him danny yeah i think he's danny yeah Yeah. i don't know Eh, anyway um (laughs) <laughs> for for us that, that thing in this scenario was the kind of open-ended nature of it where you can there's a lot of different locations and you can kind of tackle them in a number of different orders and some of them, ha- a lot of them have like, remember that you did this thing and you don't really know which of those you have to do or how many of them you have to do until you've played the scenario before or until you kind of get closer to the end and like, ultimately there is a singular goal of like, get to the the grave Mm. and get down the staircase. But up until that point, there's like a lot of different routes. And you can kind of spread out in a four-player game and tackle them at the same time. And it just uh it feels a a bit different from uh some of the other scenarios in in that regard, I think. I think it's one of
0: the things where I've said this to you before, but if you're actually investigating, if the investigators are investigating, they're not, you know, running through a train or Mm -hmm. whatever. Like if they're literally doing the job of investigating not having an act deck tell them what they need to go and do. Right, yeah. It means that you feel much more like that as a player. You're like, well, we could keep searching the downstairs, but we can get to this upstairs if we do this thing. So should we actually go there? That feels really satisfying as a player to, to be so close to what your investigator's doing.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I definitely, we wanted players for their first time playing through the scenario to really feel like they are in their the investigator's shoes. And like, all they know is their objective is to find the key or like find a way to get to the dreamlands and that's it that's all you get and you kind of yeah. have to figure that out like on your own which i think is really cool
1: i definitely felt that influence of house of leaves here if if danny <laughs> yeah. uh, wrote this i'm not sure whether it's i know you've said before it's, it's been an influence on you but this bottomless staircase beneath the house yeah of really gave me chills when we started to descend it
2: yeah and also like this scenario is kind of a So a lot of the scenarios in this campaign in general are basically adaptations of various Lovecraft stories. Um, This one in particular is sort of like a mix between two different stories. And of of course, now that I'm answering the question, I don't remember their exact names. But if I I can look it up real quick. Yeah, so the Silver Key. I want to say the Silver Key. And (laughs) the Silver Key, obviously, is one of them. And then um, what's the other one? There's another one where it's just this it's Randolph Carter going down a staircase basically like that's that's the plot Mm -hmm. yeah so like it it was a little partially inspired by House of Leaves because I had recently read that as you know but also there was definitely that other story of Randolph going down this like catacomb staircase that feels never-ending and uh, you know, in that story, it wasn't necessarily to get to the underworld, but I thought that that would be a really cool mirror to the the other uh, half of the cycle, where you have to take a staircase to get to the dreamlands. that's kind of like a motif of the dreamlands is stairs. You know what I mean?
0: And there's just that really nice like upside down nature that the stairs, the stairs in the dream side are. Yes, you're getting doom, but you're not getting encounter cards. Right, too right. Many threats on the stairs, and the stairs here—you don't even know how long they're going to go, and they each have different challenges. And there's a terrifying, unnamable creature chasing you. Yeah, it's, it's like it feels like a really nice echo that's not quite an echo.
2: I remember it's called the Statement of Randolph it, yeah. Carter. That was the other story.
1: Oh yeah, yeah that's. I thought
0: it was that. Yeah.
1: Is that yep. the one? No, I'm thinking of a different one.
2: They they discover that doors and stairways can exist between the surface world and the underworld through which demons may travel, and it's not necessarily the dreamlands in that story. It's just, like, the generic underworld, because a lot of Lovecraft's stories sort of, like, contradict one another, or don't necessarily contradict, but, like, kind of don't explicitly... Uh, it, it's not until taken as a whole do things kind of make sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he they... They go through. He takes a lantern and he goes through the stairs into the darkness, and so sort of kind of like taking those two ideas and mashing them together.
1: Is the statement of Randolph Carter the one where his friend goes in? Yes, goes down the steps and he's on the telephone or something. Yep, yep, that's yeah. the one. yeah. I, I think that might actually be the first Lovecraft story I read. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, yeah, that's and great. I couldn't stop thinking about it afterwards. That's it cool. Freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. What I what I like about So originally, you would in this scenario, you'd get to the staircase, and then that's where it ended. That that was it. That was the scenario, and um, the the actual descent was uh, was like in story text. Oh,
3: thank goodness! And yeah,
2: well, and then what happened was uh, Danny came to me. He was like, "Yo, I thought of an idea." And Danny's kind of like a quiet uh, dude. He he doesn't. He's not like boisterous like I sometimes am uh he's so he 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 just had this grin on his face and i was like what 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 is it and he like takes these staircase locations these like proxy staircases and he, like lines them up in a row and he's like you're at the top all right all you have to do is get to the bottom and i'm like o- okay and i like take one of the mini cards and i like move it down and I move it down again and then he takes the top staircase and moves it to the bottom and I'm like you <laughs> son of a <laughs> like, and I immediately was like that's amazing like I want that I want that in this scenario and he's like yeah so that's where that came from like I, I just thought that that was brilliant
0: <laughs> yeah I think it is I think that experience Again, the closeness of the experience of the player, where you're like, no! Yeah. And also, <laughs> that's the investigators. Yeah, that's exactly how the investigator feels. Right. As you slog through another horrible location. And...
2: While the nameless is, like, behind, the unnamable is just behind you the whole time. Yeah, breathing down your neck. Yeah. yeah. It was tricky to, you know, balance appropriately, obviously, because mm. uh, at one point it wasn't, it was actually truly never ending. And in a four player game, it just could last for hours, and it was like, oh, that's a problem. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, yeah. Uh, It was definitely, it was tricky, and uh, obviously you have a whole nother, basically a whole nother scenario before that to deal with as well. So timing-wise, like, I would say that in general, the scenarios in this campaign are longer than previous campaigns. Would would that be your experience as well? I feel like,
0: as we've been talking, the thing that's really struck me is that most of these scenarios have multiple sections yeah yeah they're like they're more segmented than previous scenarios
2: yes that is definitely true and that i think leads a little bit to the lengthiness which i didn't that wasn't like a goal of mine but i also didn't mind mm-hmm. it but yeah this was one of those scenarios where it's like feels like two completely segmented scenarios you yeah know what i mean
0: yeah we didn't mention when we were talking about where the gods dwell, but there's the high priest not to be described There's that whole like act one area. And I think one of the challenges as a player is knowing how long to dedicate to that. Yeah. It's like, now that I've played that scenario a few times, I know that I need to clear that section as quickly as possible to give myself the best chance when Mm -hmm. I get into the actual tower. And that's a similar thing actually with thousand shapes of horror. It's like, you can't see how much ground you need to cover. So it's quite hard to have a sense of your tempo and be like, yeah, I'm doing well. I've, I've got a, a, you know, I've got, I've got four more locations to go because you don't know that there's another five locations. And obviously once you've played a bit more that, that becomes easier. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it leads into, I think my favorite scenario in the campaign, which is point of no return. I, I just think the scenario is amazing. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so good. To me, it reminds me of Search for Kadath. You've packed in so many different locations. You've used Veiled again to give that flavor. There's so many different enemy types. I love the use of different encounter sets from the same Mythos pack. I think that's really cool. Mm. How do you as a designer judge when a scenario is coherent enough or when it's too many different things, too many different ingredients?
2: That's a tough question. So like, this was another Danny design. Mm -hmm. but originally it didn't feature the veiled keyword and the the story cards on the back that was something that i added in because after i had it after i designed the search for kadath i was like oh this would be perfect to add here so i kind of like adapted that system into point of no return but with the difference being uh you keep all the locations in place so it's like this expanding map yeah but yeah that's that's tough i think i think the trick is to as long as like the mood feels right you know as long as like you still feel like you're in the underworld then i i think that the the it still feels coherent or like i don't know the tricky part with the underworld is again similar to the search for Kadath, it's such a huge place like even just this one region is is enormous spans like most of the entirety of the under the surface of the dreamlands and it has so many interesting critters that can be there yeah and even like the sea of pitch it's just like this one kind of like tiny location that isn't actually like an outlands notcha thing in the lore but we kind of made it into that we kind of expanded its it's uh its meaning in mm. uh, in our IP to be this like this mirror that can lead you down into this world between worlds you know what i mean the fact that the scenario unfolds
0: means that you only add the spiders when you get to the Sea of Pitch. Right, right. Which immediately connects them in the player's head. It's like, oh, Sea of Pitch. That means spiders. Right. In the same way that when you're in the veil, you've got the night gaunts and the dole.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the ghouls and the gugs and the ghasts up at the all the G's. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I don't think I actually answered your question, but
0: <laughs> Yeah, you said about the thematic I, I think you gave it a good stab. Like the thema- if it feels the same consistently, yeah. that gives you that sense of coherence. I think. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about the doll?
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, Let's talk about the doll. Well, we put in our notes. <laughs> I've just, I've just noted this as we were speaking. You feel like you're playing whack-a-mole with the with the doll. Uh, Whack-a- whack-a-doll. Reason, we didn't, we didn't write whack-a-doll. I can't. Yeah, whack I missed that. <laughs> 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 but I guess it, it's it's a recurring. Theme on several scenarios, and honestly, I think you get better at it every time you do it. This idea of one big monster that you can't quite kill that keeps coming mm-hmm. back, and this feels like a really good implementation of it, especially because you can you can start to understand where he's likely to appear, uh, mm-hmm. because you've got the burrows, um, the sp- like off. kind of yeah. spreading around the place, the
2: dole hole. yeah, the door, <laughs> the <dole. laughs> the hole. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know, was he, was he meant to be a, a, a kind of a key part of this scenario or was he just, you know what will make things a bit more difficult for those folks? We'll have a a massive slimy dole.
2: <laughs> well, it's kind of like, I think originally he's there because they are there, like in the lore. Like, it would be weird if the Vale if the didn't have a dole because that's kind of like their territory, right? So, mm. we knew we wanted to have one there, but It wasn't necessarily meant from the get-go to be, like, a recurring enemy. That sort of happened organically as we were designing the scenario, because we were like, what do we want this dole tunnel treachery to do? And I was like, oh, it'd be really cool if that, you know, served as, like, a tunnel for the dole, literally, to go from one location to another and be, like, a spawning point for the dole. But the problem was we only had one dole, you know what I mean? So in order (laughs) to make that work, the dole had to become, like you know, a recurring enemy, like you said, or an enemy that was so tough that you didn't want to kill it because it can follow you around or whatever. So yeah, that's kind of where that came from. It wasn't like planned to be a mini boss at first, but sort of became one over time as we designed all of the other cards.
3: Mm.
2: Plus it's it's cool to have a mini boss.
1: Uh, yeah, Definitely. It, and he's, he gives a lot of character because, you know, when you're talking about the scenario, he, he stands out as a, as a character in himself, really. Mm-hmm. That just made your
2: life miserable when you did the scenario. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you have an entire encounter set around one card, that card's yeah. going to feel yeah. big. Yeah. The other character I think
0: worth noting is there's Richard Upton Pickman yes. here as well.
2: Yeah, Pickman. Who
0: builds up his army of ghouls and <laughs> sets the ghouls on people, which I just think is such a... The way that it works and what it means in the gameplay terms. If Rich has only got one ghoul with him, he doesn't hit very hard. But if he can set multiple ghouls on an enemy, he can hit harder. I mean, it's obviously linked to like the ghoul army in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadaf. Yeah. But just works really well. But I think the detail I really love is that when you get Richard Upton Pikmin to join you, you take out the striking fear encounter set from the encounter deck. Because you've got this guide now. So things are less scary i guess Mm -hmm.
2: yeah you're you're no longer as freaked out by what's going on because you've got a friendly ghoul
0: (laughs) yeah exactly and i just think that's such a cool way of um showing that he's had some impact that the the encounter card the encounter deck has changed because of an ally you found it seems like a really nice detail
2: yeah yeah i like you said this mirrors the plot of of the dream quest and kind of like I said earlier like a lot of the scenarios uh in this in this cycle are meant to like adapt particular scenes from that novella yeah. and uh that was one of them that that we were really inspired by like you know he enters the underworld and then he leaves by the time he leaves the underworld he's got this like army of ghouls and night gaunts at, at his back you know what I mean Yeah yeah I, I thought that was really cool and I wanted to at least get a chance for that to happen mm-hmm. but I what I love is that if you if you lost Randolph in Thousand Shapes of Horror, all of a sudden it, it takes on a, a totally different tone, and Pikmin's like, he's not mad at you, but he's definitely like not going to help you out, because Randolph's not with yeah. you.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just done very neatly, a different Act 1, right, and a different intro. Yeah. And yeah, suddenly it's like, okay, this is, yeah, a different experience. So I've mentioned already how I really enjoy the flow from thousand shapes of horror into point of no turn jump into the sea of pitch find a massive spider (laughs) you know it's just a normal day in the office right (laughs) i love the fact that in arkham there's so much scope to travel really great distances and you know fly into space in before the black throne or lost in time and space but there's something actually really refreshing about how these scenarios are really close like you you've already mentioned i suppose the time dilation Mm -hmm. between one scenario and this scenario was that a fortunate discovery or was that always the plan that it would be kind of tight in setting i suppose yeah that
2: that was planned from the beginning i definitely wanted the two campaigns to feel really different in that regard and i also kind of wanted it to be this sort of thing where when you're playing them interconnected and the black cat is hopping between them you yourself like the player are questioning that because you're you're like wait in the dreamlands like a month has passed Mm
0: -hmm, and it's like the same
2: night for these other investigators how is the black cat you know able to to do this and it's because time is different in the dreamlands time is slower you can you can spend an entire month or you know you can do an entire journey in one night because you're dreaming Mm -hmm. so kind of like it doesn't start to slow for these investigators until they reach uh the underworld basically Everything up until that point is is really fast. But what I like about it too is that it it's just one more note to differentiate the two campaigns and make them feel different from one another.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that now you've mentioned it as well, it's really easy to see that the, the kind of the the descent side of it in this scenario. It's almost like there's two throats either side of point of no return, isn't there? You've got the, the stairs at the end of A Thousand Shapes of Horror, and you've got that descent at the beginning of the Weaver of the Cosmos as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's kind of like very long and strung out. It it almost I tell you what, on reflecting, it feels a bit like I don't know whether you've played the the first Dark Souls game. But that's a game uh, where I, you <laughs> have I played the first Dark Souls game. <laughs> uh, th- but that feels, doesn't it, like you've got a very long, tall world that that, mm-hmm. that, that the, the paths weave up and down across that world.
2: Yeah, to me the underworld feels much like uh, New Londo. Yes. In Dark Souls? Yeah. Where you kind of descend down into this forbidden place and it's it's under it like it's underground but it's big enough to feel like its own world. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And you've got what's her face the spider demon at the bottom of Blighttown as well, haven't you? Right. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Quelog.
1: Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah, and 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 it's that feeling of I think there's there's not a huge number of games which get that feeling of of depth done well and you do get that when you get right to the is it ash lake right ash the lake
2: ash lake is the most hauntingly beautiful location i've ever seen in any video game period and you feel deep
1: you feel like you're, you're yeah you feel under like you're the, the foundation of the, you. of
2: the world yeah also i would say that um bloodborne is another inspiration for the sea of the whole sea of pitch aspect because the the moment where you jump into the lake and right before you fight rom is like really impactful to me. I don't know if you've played Bloodborne. Oh yeah, yeah. Have, have I played, I played Bloodborne? Bloodborne? Yeah, no, right. Yeah, um, but like that—that yeah, no, that kind is, of mirrors that same journey of jumping into the sea of pitch and then fighting Alash Nacha at the bottom.
1: Here's here's a, a, something you'll like. I don't know whether you know this. Uh, I think it was only spotted relatively recently, mm-hmm. but but in in the DLC for Bloodborne, I think it's either in the the water after you fought Maria or or after the bat, final boss. If you look into the water, you can see what looks like the spires of Yarnum.
2: Yeah, I, I I actually noticed that before I ever saw it online. Oh, wow. it's, well, there you it's, go. it's right after you fight Maria and you're you're about to enter the fishing hamlet. Yes, that's and you can it. you yeah. kind of look around and there's the there's like the one dude just wandering around. And if you yeah. kind of look like behind where you exited from and off in the distance, yeah, if you look down, you can see Yarnum below, and you're like. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> yeah, which um, kind of reminds me a little bit of if you take the path below to get to Dim Carcosa at the end oh, yeah. of yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, Black of Stars course. Rise. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: You look up and can see the the world above you.
2: Yeah. When you went into the Sea of Pitch, uh, did it almost feel to you like a point in from which you might not return? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And is that
1: description accurate? Yes, it is. <laughs> we did not return. <laughs> wow well, bomb? So should we should we go down into the Weaver of the Cosmos then?
0: Yeah, let's do. that. I think
1: I've already said about uh, where the gods dwell. How much I love that as as a, as a great uh, great old one uh, fight. I think this one does it even better. And I must admit, the first time we didn't. F- it, it wasn't too challenging, but it it felt very good to have played it. And it yeah. felt like we'd earned our victory when we finally got it. Mm-hmm. Um, like we thought our way around the problem, and we'd we'd taken the decisions uh, and got to the point where we could do really well on that scenario. I think this is this is this is just a fantastic scenario. I think it's the best like fight combat fight we've had so far mm-hmm. in in the the game. Mm-hmm. And I guess the centerpiece is the the old spinning spider weaving in the middle. <laughs> and, and do you want to talk maybe about that? I think. I'm sure I've heard you say somewhere. Once you came up with the idea, you kind of ran into into the office excited <laughs> to share it with everyone.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this was actually the one, the one scenario in this side of the campaign that I designed that Danny didn't. And part of that was because right up, right from the beginning, I was like, I want this to feel like a raid boss in like an MMO <laughs> or like a Destiny boss, where it's like it's huge in scope and you kind of have to like take down different parts of it or something like that. Like I, I hadn't, I didn't know at the time what I was going to do, but I, I knew that I wanted it to feel like that, which was also kind of the same feeling that we had when we were designing the blob. This mm-hmm. feeling of like it being a raid boss. Like me and Brad are both really big Destiny fans, so that was kind of part of that. But like for a long time, I had wanted to do a multi-card boss, and I wasn't sure like when to do it. Like it didn't really feel right for any of the for for. Uh, for Yogg-Sothoth, it didn't feel right. For for Yig, Yig isn't really even that big of an enemy, like, <laughs> size-wise. Card, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's hard, but he's not, like, size-wise, just in terms of scope. Yeah, um, yeah. And the same thing for, like, Haster's not even really, like, a being, <laughs> like, physically. <laughs> um, so it didn't really make sense until now. Once I kind of stuck on that, I was like, okay, multi-card boss, that's cool. Uh, and it makes sense for a spider, it's got all the different legs... And then I started kind of like mapping out what that could look like, what shapes those cards could take. And the second that I realized that you could like line up the cards that the way that it's presented, I went into InDesign and I'm like fairly proficient in in InDesign. I wouldn't say like I'm nearly anywhere in the realm as good as any of our graphic designers, but I'm decent. I can do some stuff. So I like kind of like took the template and like flipped it vertically and I like moved stuff around and stuff like that and I got it to look kind of close to the way it looks in the version that you guys have. And I printed them out and I like ran to to well first <laughs> first, I, first I ran to my art to the art department room and I was like check this out. And I like slapped them on the table and I was like w- can we do this? Like can we do a card like this and i basically i did this with printing out like a picture of a spider off of the internet you know what i mean (laughs) and like putting that where the enemy cards are so you can kind of see the legs sticking out and they were like oh my god that sounds awesome so then i ran to angie navarro and i showed him and he fell in love with the idea everyone i showed it to was like this is awesome like no one was like oh i don't know they were all like this is really really cool so i knew that i had hit on something that you know players would enjoy from that moment on, like that became the mechanic. And then it was about figuring out how to do that in, in a way that like thematically made sense.
3: Mm, Yeah.
2: And I was like, well, okay, what if, you know, what if, what if all the locations were around it and it spun around? And then I realized if you like align the locations around it perfectly, you know, eight locations that when you spun it, it would actually border four locations at any moment in time. And I was like, holy crap, like, this works perfectly! <laughs> it was, like, mm-hmm. total, like, almost a coincidence that that it worked out quite as well as it did. You know what I mean?
1: I think, like, there's, there's almost something... Because we've had scenarios in the game which the, the, the orientation of the cards makes a difference. So if you mm-hmm. think about when you're in the catacombs uh, or in... Uh, uh, the end of the circle and done cycle, but I won't spoil anything from that. You, you've got that the idea of the way you lay the cards out and the, the geography of the cards matters. But yeah. this idea that a card could be turned 45 degrees, I know it, it sounds silly <laughs> and I sound like a real loser for saying this, but there's almost something to do about like an orientation that isn't orthogonal
2: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in the game. Sure. Suddenly it's
1: like, oh, I've got to turn it sideways and then see what it's touching.
2: <laughs> yeah, and the, the hardest thing in the scenario was just describing it. It's just, like, trying to get the point across without, like, over-complicating it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. when
1: you see it laid out, it's it's intuitive, you know? And then it clicks that, oh, and if we take out this leg, then that's not going to touch any of them. Then we've got to run around and catch the
2: other legs as well. Right, 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 right. Yeah.
0: And because Atlachnatcha only moves one way, or predominantly moves one way, there's also that sense of like, we need to get ahead of a leg because it's going to come towards <laughs> us. Like if we're, if we're two locations on, it's probably going to come swooping past us shortly. And that that whole side of um, the scenario of kind of how good's your movement to get to yeah. the right place to kill the next leg is so fun. And
1: especially yeah. when, when, and again, this, this is where it sounds like a raid boss, uh, when she turns into the second form. <laughs> yes. Final yeah. form. Yeah. And it's like they're dropping doom on every location. And that was, we knew that's what was going to defeat us if anything defeated him. when we, when we first played this and it was a case of hedging our bets about where we
2: thought she was going to end up landing. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm I'm using she, is it, is she
2: right? I can't remember. Yeah. She, she is correct. I think for that much. Yeah. I'm a big JRPG fan too. And, uh, it's not a final boss fight if it doesn't have multi-phases right <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> just when you yeah. thought you defeated it just when you thought you defeated yeah. it, it grows a new set of legs and you're like oh no oh, yeah those
0: tiny legs come
2: out of yeah. it yeah <laughs> there's so many little
0: details i like there as well like clues still do the same amount of damage right but it has more health so it doesn't work in the same way she then does do attacks of opportunity where the legs didn't mm-hmm. so like we had that before uh, my three player group. We had loads of clues and we got to the final form. We were like, oh yeah, easy. Just walk up and just do a load of load of clues. And then it was like, oh, hang on. Attacks of Opportunity, that doesn't work as well as we think it does. Can right. we survive, you know, being hit by this thing? And yeah, all of that. Hits hard. It's kind of, it can move quickly and hit you very hard <laughs> without you expecting it. It's really good.
2: Yeah, I, I think part of the difficulty with this scenario is not just the stand-up fight nature of it, but also the the movement, you know? Mm, um, yeah. Especially if you're unlucky or if you're playing in a higher difficulty and it moves really, really fast and often.
0: Yeah, you, you can suddenly be swimming in doom or just miles away from it and things like that. Right, yeah. It's a really nice scenario for feeling like every location is probably bad. Like, you're exploring a web, so it's probably going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And I think... I remember feeling like, I think I stumbled onto the the five shroud location that gets a doom. And I was like, well, I can't get a clue here. I'll move on to the next one. That was like one shroud, but you have to add a doom or spend extra actions. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere that's going to be good. It's not like there's going to be verdant grove in the middle of the web. It's just going to be grim. But yeah. yeah, it really adds to that feeling of being stuck. I'm glad you liked it. Peter, do you have anything else you want to ask about Dream Eaters?
1: I don't think so. I think I'll tell you what, you answer the question first, Frank, and come back to me.
0: <laughs> well, we've got one last question here, which is that how did you reflect the desires of Atlatch Nature to sort of meld all worlds together mm. in the scenarios here? I think you wrote that question though, Peter. Have I asked? <laughs> that?
2: Did I? Well, I'll, I'll answer it regardless. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah. Well, so like <laughs> Atlachnacha is similar, very different from Nyarlathotep in that Nyarlathotep's story is a bit more personal in nature and a bit more like in your head. Like he knows you. You know what I mean? Whereas mm. Atlachnacha is more of this kind of uh, this beast with its its instinctual motivation of wanting to build its web. And it doesn't really know you or care about you. You're just kind of like in the way. So I, I kind of wanted to reflect that in in its mechanics. It's not just like attacking you in the same way that like Haster was attacking you in Dim Carcosa or yogg is just kind of like approaching the world because that's what it wants to do. Th- this is more very much like it's got its engine. It wants to spawn spiders. The spiders place doom. The doom represents the bridge. It wants to build the bridge. That's it. That's really yeah. all it's doing. And if it attacks you, or if the spiders attack you, that's just because you happen to be there. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. if you just stood away, it would just keep building its bridge and then win. You're almost insignificant, aren't you? It's just the legs trampling around
0: might squash you.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the feeling that I wanted to evoke, and I kind of wanted you to feel like a pest, like a thorn in its side, taking it down and removing the, you know, destroying bits of the web in order to prevent it from finishing its bridge. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because it's not like Atlachnatcha even comes for you when it reaches its final form. No, yeah. It, it just, just keeps running around the web. It just keeps running, keeps, around, the just web. Keeps running like, around, okay, yeah. I've
2: got to keep going, yeah. Yep, that's all it cares about.
1: I've got to say that, that I have to pass on thanks to my friend Matt, who um, is deathly arachnophobic. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, I mean, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, right, I see you. you've written about what scares you. <laughs> and we engineered things so that he, as Tommy, could land the finishing blow on nice. Ach- Ach- Lack- Natcha with the flamethrower
2: <laughs> oh awesome So
1: <laughs> she blundered into his location uh, in that final form and he was standing there with the flamethrower ready to go just <laughs> nice. absolutely wow. toasted it did, he, did he at least yeah. say a
2: cool one liner <laughs> oh man I can't remember I think he was just too glad to see the back of her <laughs> uh, he should have been like um, should have been like oh, I'm going to turn up the heat or something. <laughs> but yeah I'm 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 highly arachnophobic spin on this there you go yeah i like it so yeah I, I it's uh it's easy to channel that phobia when you're writing the the art briefs and come up with some really crazy stuff like you know a spider's bursting out of a dude's mouth oh, and no. stuff like that <laughs> and i i had kind of a similar experience with the uh, upcoming insmith because i'm i'm also afraid of the deep ocean i'm the same um, i'm yeah, exactly the same I, I hate the deep ocean oh god mm. like any video game where you can swim i'm oh, done no, i'm just no. nope the nope depth uh, beneath
1: you just the endless depth there's actually yeah. it's, it's on a card in uh constellation, constellation in yeah. the constellation isn't it something i, I think can't so yeah thalophobia is it or something the last Lacer- of the last Lacer-
2: Lacer- that's it wow well we, i'll tell you we what we'll share that d- yeah does <laughs> that lead
1: us neatly on to our kind of wrapping up point Super. Yeah, yeah. Although,
2: actually, I did want to mention Randolph on, real quick. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Randolph. So, like, I'm just curious. When you got to this point in the cycle, what what was your thought regarding Randolph? Like, what did you think was going to happen? I did this one
1: before I did where gods Twelve. Right. We got the. There was always something slightly odd about him, but I couldn't nail down what it was. And I mm-hmm. guess it's in. When you think about it, it is obvious, because there's two of them. And the, <laughs> the, the rules are kind of established that you, that doesn't happen. Right, yeah. And you just, you just put it down to it being a bit of weird Lovecraftian nonsense. Right. But it's not, and it's, it, was, it was kind of staring you in the face the whole way along. So when, it, when, when that happened and he turns around, I was like, oh. <laughs> and then I immediately assumed he was off to be the bad guy in, in Where the Gods Dwell
2: did you okay so yeah because the reason the reason i asked was because early on we were like oh it'd be cool if there were two rain and like one of them was real and one of them wasn't right mm-hmm. and uh we we kind of worked off of that assumption for a little while and then it became this thing where it's like well if he's if he is real in one of them then that's become that's going to become a totally like a non like a what's the word like a it's not a surprise when you replay it and we even, we even kind of fiddled around with the idea of it being random, but that didn't really work either for various reasons. And at one point I was like, what if they're both not real? Like, <laughs> like, what if yeah. neither one is Randolph? Um, like Narlathotep is tricking you into believing that it's Randolph and it's actually using the player's knowledge of the Dreamlands, if they have any, into believing that's real because both of these adventures follow plots from stories that Randolph is a character in. Like, he goes to the moon and is captured. He goes down into the underworld and, and recruits ghouls. and Like, he does all of these things in these stories. So Nyarlathotep is, like, following the plot of these, like, meta stories from real life in order to trick you, the player, into thinking that he's real in both mm. campaigns. <laughs> and I was really inspired by that because I loved the idea of a player being like, okay... It's Nearlathotep in this one. It's a mask of Nearlathotep. He's fake. So in the other one it must be real. It must be real, yeah, yeah. Right. That
0: was me. That was definitely me, Matt. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. That's when awesome. I, I did where where the gods dwell first. I was like, damn it, I thought it was uh, Virgil, but it's Randolph. That's fine. What a what a bastard. So, a
2: so Randolph man. is real in the other one. And then you get to the other one, and you're like, Wait, yeah, what? <laughs> and the other one
0: he's then cutting the the web and you're like, What are you doing, you idiot? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I Fell, hook, hook line and sink.
2: awesome I'm glad because i that was one of my favorite like i I, I felt that players would be like I said before like you've been betrayed a number of times by now in Arkham stories so mm-hmm. I thought that players would immediately suspect him and I thought that the only way that I could like put a twist on that is to surprise them with it twice They're like well, like surely. <laughs> The other Randolph can also be. Oh my god, it is. Okay, (laughs) I think you
0: did a quite good job of in sort of discussions and interviews before the cycle came out and early on in the cycle. You've always mentioned how accomplished Randolph is, right? He's not a kind of struggling hero who's just bumbling through. He's, yeah, maybe Lovecraft's most accomplished protagonist, yeah, yeah, competent in the dreamlands. He's you know, an adventurer. And that definitely seeped through to me and and tallied with what I knew about Randolph. So you're seeing this cool asset that gives you two stat boosts, has another ability. I was like, okay, cool. We've just got the good Randolph here. It's like Henry Armitage again. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I bought into that heavily.
1: Mm -hmm. I think him having the positive uh, abilities on him uh, really helps you uh, warm to him as a character. You know, it's cementing what good he's doing for you when you get him into play. Uh,
2: and he's, yeah. he's giving you those two cards when you draw the token and, and the stat boosts as well. And he, even from a meta standpoint, like if, if you keep him alive throughout the campaigns, you get bonuses for it. Like you can only yeah. recruit Pikmin if he's alive, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And am I um, I'm right in thinking the super ending, you need to have had the cat on side, but you also, you need to have got through Thousand Shapes of Horror with randall yes yeah because you need to have the the key and you need to get the key to the other side yeah so like you do need him all the way through right before he's then betraying you you just need to also have had the cat on side which i think is really nice as well as like it's not like in a forgotten age where you can just forge your own path and you kind of turn your back on other characters Mm -hmm. yeah you kind of need to still engage with him
2: yeah, you you just have to you have to go down the path of the black cat having a hunch and then follow that all the way to its its logical conclusion. And if at any point one of the two Randolphs goes away, then the black cat's like, oh well, that that resolved itself nicely, and then like doesn't <laughs> yeah. doesn't care yeah, anymore yeah. because he's like, all right, well, I I guess I was wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned Innsmouth. I sure did. Yeah, historically on these interviews we normally like to ask you about what's on your mood board for the next cycle just mm-hmm. as a little tease when we finish the interview. Uh, have you got a bit of time to yeah. tell us a little bit about Innsmouth and for what sure. books and films we should be re- uh, reading <laughs> and watching to get in the mood?
2: Yeah definitely. Uh, so if if you watched our recent live stream on FFG Live we, we definitely talked a lot about it because we, we went we did like an in-depth if you if you forgive the pun a deep dive into Innsmith lore <laughs> and we mentioned uh, a bunch of different sources of inspiration for us obviously if you're mm-hmm. looking for pure Lovecraft lore the shadow over Innsmith is the classic uh, novella I would definitely read that because that's going to give you sort of a good feeling of what Innsmouth is like and what kind of places we're likely to explore in Innsmouth and get a kind of sense of the, the mood of the of the place Innsmouth is sort of the seedy decrepit suspicious creepy port city or town where everyone seems like they're in on something and you're the outsider and you show up and everyone's like you shouldn't be here you know what i mean <laughs> um and it's you, almost you as really fleshed
1: out in the board game as as arkham is really because uh, it's been yes. covered in expansion after expansion
2: yeah yeah it Innsmouth has appeared in almost every arkham or not almost every Arkham game we've ever done. It's it's a pretty beloved setting, not in the IP, but like beloved by players. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of content that we can pull from from different games. Uh, Mansions of Madness has two different scenarios right in the the core set of the second edition. Uh, we're doing a new expansion for Arkham Third Edition that features Insmith. Really, the I think the only scenario or the only board game that doesn't feature Insmith is maybe Eldritch Horror. Yeah. because it's, you know, a globe-trotting adventure. So, focusing on one city doesn't really make sense. But yeah, uh, uh, mood-wise, like that being said, one of the things that I wanted to focus on, I wanted to kind of get back to the mystery element in Arkham Horror. Like Arkham Horror is a game about solving weird supernatural mysteries. So, I wanted to have the players and the investigators kind of feel like there's a mystery going on that you're trying to solve that maybe doesn't even get solved in one playthrough you have to maybe play it more than once to kind of get the full picture similar to a lot of my favorite movies like lamento and struggling to come up with another one right (laughs) off the top of my head but like that that sort of feeling where you like you watch it and you're like hold on and you like watch it a second time and now kind of Mm -hmm. all the puzzle pieces fit hopefully it'll get that feeling across it obviously it's not going to be the same because it's not a movie but so we have this like amnesia angle where you go into it not really knowing where you're from or like what you're doing here and you kind of have to go back and there are actually all these flashbacks in the campaign guide that you have to trigger to get your memories back. Wow. Yeah. It's going to be really cool. I'm, I'm really excited. So any, any sort of thriller mystery is going to be a good thing to get you into the mood. Also like video game wise, uh, we mentioned Bloodborne before, like the fishing Hamlet level is very much inspired by Innsmith. The, uh, Dark Corners of the Earth is a video game I played a long time ago that features Innsmith.
1: That has a great... uh, It replicates the the Gilman House uh, escape chase, doesn't it? Yeah,
2: very much. Uh, Like, almost letter for letter, yeah. Yeah.
1: I maintain one of Lovecraft's best action sequences he's ever written. Because it isn't happening third-hand from someone recounting to a police officer something someone told him once.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's true, yeah. It's not a diary. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, not a, it's not a yeah. journal account of a thing that happened three months ago that I'm sending to my brother's best friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> po- posthumously.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I think, gives us a really good taste of the next cycle. I'm really excited for it. I think the idea of it being um, a maybe more familiar setting for Arkham, mm-hmm. but with this idea of mystery and really wanting to explore it, I think sounds really intriguing. We know all of the investigators in this deluxe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know all of their deck building, but we now know who's turning up, which is exciting. And we're getting our first non-four-plus intellect seeker. Um, <laughs> is this because seekers are now so strong that they no longer need?
2: High <laughs> no, no, I, I just like I, we've done this before with other classes but i kind of like having an investigator that breaks the mold every now and then joe diamond is a perfect example of that and even in this cycle we had like tony and patrice uh and i think one of the molds that we can break is the 12 stat line right of like yeah oh their stats have to add up to 12 and we've done that a couple times with like calvin and preston and amanda is just another one in that cycle i would i would say where Mm -hmm. It's not so much that she's breaking the mold of seekers so much as she's breaking the mold of investigators in general, adding up to 12. And that's because her ability is so strong that mm-hmm. the 2222 two, two, two is like fine. <laughs> like she doesn't need higher than that because her ability just makes up for it. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited for her and kind of getting my head around
2: that ability and how, <laughs> how you respond to her, <laughs> yeah. an investigator like that. Yeah. yeah. She's probably my favorite. Maybe not my favorite in the cycle, but she's definitely my second favorite.
0: That was going to be my next question. Who are you most excited for?
2: Uh, I think my most. I'm most excited for Trish, the one that you don't know what she does. <laughs> Great. It's uh, well. Have you have you said what her classes are,
1: or am I? Is is it? Am I just remembering speculation?
2: Uh, I haven't. I don't think we've okay. said explicitly. That's fine. But what I have said is that she is a class combination we have yet to see. Right, and I think. That was some people have extrapolated from that,
1: and <laughs> gone through all the class <laughs> yeah. combinations we have seen, and worked out what she could be, which uh, seems to fit with her her backstory anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that that
0: would be yeah. quite exciting.
2: Yeah, she's really good.
0: And am I right in thinking there's also a bit of an emphasis on skills in this coming cycle? Is that something you can answer?
2: Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Amanda for sure, and Silas are both very much skill focused investigators. Yeah. So. At least, at the very least, in those two classes, there's a, definitely an emphasis on skills.
1: Cool. I'm guessing that is very Thematically, well. this is because we're isolated in in a in a in a hostile fishing hamlet, and we've got nothing to rely on, <laughs> on except our innate practiced skills. Abilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, I, I like that explanation. <laughs> <laughs> there's
0: no assets. No assets to be seen. Cool. Well, I think we've come to the end of our, our time together. Does, uh, Peter, have you got anything left you want to ask?
1: No, no. Um, thank you so much for the, making the time to speak to us, Matt. I guess the thing we always ask you right at the end is, do you have any other messages for the, for the
2: people who listen and for the fans of the game? I guess my message would just be, I know that this is these are hard times, these are weird times, and I know that our scheduling has become a little wonky as a result. I would just ask that everyone be patient, and I I know that it sucks. It sucks for us, too. Like, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully everything's kind of back on course now, and we can, you know, get back to our more set schedule. We've got a lot of really exciting products coming up in the the fall, so it's going to be really awesome when they start dropping. It it does
1: look. I think you know. I've seen people jokingly say, "Oh, is the game dead? We haven't had any releases for so long." <laughs> but I think everyone is is well aware we've got a, a really stocked pipeline. Yeah. And when yeah. when it s- starts to flow again, we're going to get. In fact, people are worried about. Be a to deluge. space out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For sure.
2: Yeah. Those five starter decks in particular.
1: Yeah, 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 and and to give each one the time to uh, to, to to kind of get to know it and play it. If you've yeah. got five landing at once, it's it's not easy. Yeah, no other questions from me, really. Frank, I don't know whether you've got anything.
0: No, I don't have anything more to say than just thanks, Matt. Thank you so much for your time, making the time for the game, obviously, which you get paid to do, but also (laughs) for supporting the game by talking to us and uh, being so generous with your insights and and the development process. Thank you. No, I mean, I think it's
2: me that has to thank you because you guys do so much for the community. And honestly, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show with you guys. So thank you. Thank you so much yeah thank you <laughs> thank, thank you, you. No, thank, you. No, thank, thank, you. You. thank God. you are we becoming well, thank full, you. fully
1: british now <laughs> <laughs> taken over
0: <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com we're on all social media around the place that's drawn to the flame and matt people can get in touch with you if they have rules queries and things by using the rule query form on ffg yes Is that, that would best be the, thing? that's the yeah. way
2: to get in touch with me yeah
0: well thanks very much for listening
2: thanks all Three, two, one. Oh shit! I did it a little late. <laughs> That's
4: fine.
0: <laughs> I can adjust it. Okay.
2: <laughs> Just like align your two claps and then align mine. And then like yours a little, an inch like a second right, later. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's it's cool. vital for preserving the uh, the, the transatlantic uh, lag there.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly.
1: Oh, I will tell you what. I, we started watching. I don't know whether you've seen it. Mm. I was talking to my friends about this. Uh, Avenue Five. No, I haven't. It's it's really good. I can highly recommend it. Uh, it's an I don't know how he's it, probably popular in the states now as well. But Armando Iannucci, who Frank or Ulm certainly know, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure uh, Andrea's probably met him.
0: Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh,
1: it's, it's 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 a series he's done about a, a, a cruise ship in space. It's got a hell of a cast. Oh. It's got Hugh, Hugh Laurie's in it, Josh oh, Gad's in cool. it. It's actually it's got a really diverse cast as well, which is really nice to see. One of the main characters is Polly, which oh, awesome. I, I totally didn't expect, and it's not like it's not a joke, and right. it's not the main it's thing not, it's about not the character for laughs. <laughs> yeah, uh, every uh,
2: just every Polly character I've ever seen in like in any show or, or movie is just it, like it's just an excuse to have this character sleep with everyone. Exactly, and yeah, it's yeah. not you know like exploring any like interesting aspects of that. It's just like, let's make this character really floaty.
1: Yeah. And there's a, there's a great Hugh Laurie meta joke in it, which you'll have to watch it to find out.
2: But one of the things Uh, is, I love, I love Hugh Laurie. He's he's, like one of my favorite actors.
1: You'll, you'll very much enjoy a joke early on in the series then. Yeah. But anyway, they're out near Saturn and there's a, there's a 26 second delay. Whenever they try and speak to people on Earth, <laughs> and e- every time it happens, Josh Gard, who's like this, he's the founder of the cruise company, but he's a he's a total idiot. And every time it happens, he gets really annoyed, and he'd be there like shouting at the person on the other, se- on the other end of the, the telecoms link, and then just not reacting. And
2: mm-hmm. then he turns
1: to his staff and he says, "Fix that link, fix that delay." Can't, <laughs> it's a delay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what, uh, what is it? What is it on? Is it on? Uh... Well, like, uh, it's, any service it's, or anything? It's HBO. So it's HBO, it's okay.
1: HBO Max. Um, uh, uh, that's going to we've tough. got it on... <laughs> it's on Sky, uh, Sky box sets over here, or Sky over here. So we we can watch it on Sky, which means it's also on Nav TV. Um, but I have no idea how you'd watch it in America.
2: I think my... Hmm. Is it on HBO Go? It could Let me be. Because my, my parents have HBO, and I, I often steal their HBO to watch, like, Westworld. So... If it's on that, I can. Well, we'll find out. I'll find out. <laughs> cool. Sorry, Frank. That was a diversion. No, that's I, quite all right. That's, that's awesome. What a cold day. I, I looked. <laughs> I looked it up, and I was like, "Wow, that looks really interesting." Because I love Hugh Laurie, and I love sci-fi, and I love comedy. So I'm like, "Well, no. yeah, it, it tick a great. lot of boxes." <laughs> People have yeah. said like
1: the, the, the mass panic aspect of it is like weirdly relevant at the moment mm-hmm. as well. Oh yeah, it is on HBO mm-hmm. Go.
2: Sick. Cool. I'm going to watch this.
1: Sorry, Frank.
0: Don't worry, it's good. It's all good. Three, two,
2: one. I was a little early that time. (laughs)
0: It's <laughs> oh, not going to make it easier for the edit man. Yeah. Well you know
2: If you get it so that the first clap I'm super late and the second clap I'm a little Just a teensy bit early then you're perfect Yeah <laughs>
0: The point of the clap is that I line up the three lines And they're the same <laughs> Yeah Well
2: cool. oops
1: I forgot one of the things I was going to say Oh this was relevant to you Frank and, and to you A little bit Matt On my stream I've been playing Desperados 3 uh, Which is really really good but there's like these challenge levels mm. that you can unlock, which are old maps. And apparently there's some kind of Lovecraftian twist on one of the, the New Orleans levels at some point. Which made Ooh. me think of, um, of what's it called again? Bloody Ruger Yeah, again.
0: Yeah. Hmm. That's cool. I'll have to do it on stream and I can check it out.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: three two one I think that's a good getting one. worse <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs>